Yeah, so let me do a little um, intro here. I got, um, we'll just do side-by-side -side cam for the moment. I got like my computer up in case it's needed if you want to reference something. Sure. But um, yeah, so I saw your YouTube video. I shared it like in the Discord and um, I think in a Facebook group about titled like the perversion of sample cards. Just I had like a funny title caught my attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was so I was like, yeah, I was yeah. So you know, I, I listened to the video. You made some interesting points, and um, you know, some I agreed with, some I didn't. And uh, based on like just context I have um, from the game and just my perspective, I guess it's probably biased by my interest in in um, sorcery to some some regard. I'm sure. Um, so I'll say that like I have some background and experience with like MTG, vintage MTG, and um, like flesh and blood from the past few years. Uh -huh. um, just kind of casually watching the industry for other games. Like I, you know, I'm not into MetaZoo or any of those games, but I would like and po Pokemon, you know. But I would kind of like passively watch those markets just out of like interest in the the TCG economy and how supply and demand works and those factors and just kind of like their come to market strategy and how things evolve with valuations of different it's, products. It's a fascinating hours. industry, right? Like the yeah, whole industry yeah. overall, it's just crazy how there's mm -hmm. so many different TCGs and each one of them has like different business models and strategies and places where they are in the cycle. It's, it's, yeah. it's really fun to analyze. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, I just wanted to paint that context uh, to say that like, I'm not intimately familiar with other games approaches to sample cards. Um, so I learned some things from your video. You're probably more knowledgeable on that. Um, so I could probably speak pretty well to what Sorcery did. And then I'd be interested in your perspectives on like what other games did and maybe hear from like your video, like which games you're referring to, or if you think that like you like some approaches better than others, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, for so sure. I and I mean, yeah, just to ahead. start it off though, like in the beginning of my video, I think like the whole point of it, right? The perversion of sample cards, it's it's very it sounds very sexy, right? But uh ultimately <laughs> yeah. all I'm saying is that how we perceive them, how the consumer base perceives sample cards has changed. It's changed mm -hmm. in the last four years drastically, from you know, my point of view. And again, like, yeah. you know, I probably have some certain biases and I you know, there's a lot of markets that I'm not in. So maybe there has been sample cards in the past that were, you know, perceived as the highest you know, echelon of rarity of other games. I just didn't mm -hmm. see it, you know, uh, four years ago. And, uh, you know, you didn't have that many new Kickstarter TCGs. You didn't have as many new TCGs that probably prevented the sample card markets from, you know, sprouting out. You know, you had the top three, four TCGs that, you know, have been in the industry forever. But basically, long story short, I feel like the perception has just changed. Like, have have you seen that? Like, wh what did you think about that type of um... like perception? So I've only seen it in uh, like MetaZoo to some extent, just kind of out of like I saw that um, I was pretty into sorcery, obviously, from the get go, like pretty since like last uh, August, September timeframe when when the official sorcery discord was first set up. Um, and so at that time, you know, like Eric had teased like he, he was very active in the discord because he wasn't as busy with the Kickstarter campaign. And he was kind of talking about like what the different pledge tiers could include. And I remember him saying that the um, the highest end tier, which they, they ended up calling the Avatar of the Realm uh, tier, was for there, there was like four people that can pick that one. And he was saying things like it's going to be like this mega everything he could get into the kid. And he just had some loose ideas, you know, it wasn't like completely defined. And I think at the time he said it was going to be like actually 100 individual sample cards 
if I remember correctly. And then the collector tier, which is one notch below, was going to be like a, a assortment of various arts of 10 sample cards. So what, wasn't what time pass. period is this? This is like the um, last fall. Yeah. So it was like four months before Kickstarter, when it was kind of like in the formative stages of like how he would go to market with Kickstarter campaign. Um, so that's where I started first hearing about sample cards. And then I was looking, I, I just like looked at other games out of interest and saw that MetaZoo had some, and I like went on eBay and I was like, well, what are these worth? What are they selling for to kind of think about the valuation of different pledge levels. And, um, I saw that they were typically printed in like hundred, I think pop of like a hundred copies of each card, if I remember correctly, or that's what I would see in the eBay listings. Um, so they were more plentiful than, uh, what we believe to be the case in sorcery. We could touch on that point because I know you had some, some, I, some, uh, I guess, reservation about how many could exist and what like assumptions people are making in the market. Well, yeah, but before we get into that, like the time period you're talking about is like 2021 when you're, I think you're yeah. talking with Eric, right? Like that's um, still in the last yeah. two, two years, essentially. Like I'm talking about like four years ago, like you mm -hmm. didn't hear anyone talking on the internet about sample cards and there weren't as many like defined markets. Like uh, somebody in my video, when they commented, they said that MetaZoo kind of started the whole sample card, uh, you know, kind of like enticement if you will in the market mm -hmm. i i tend to believe that if you want to look at like the origin of who like kicked that off uh yeah. in the, the in the last three years i'd, I'd probably like point to them as like okay that is kind of where the echelon of okay what is the highest ranking collectible in this game and sample card is for you know metazoo and i feel like mm -hmm. that kind of permeated out into other tcgs and they're like oh this is what our you know community wants okay we'll put it in the kickstarters you know so yeah that, and I, I think from your standpoint too that's where you heard of it first too right from like oh like you heard eric talking about it but then you saw like metazoo already had a market for that right um yeah pretty much like metazoo is the only other game i know of like i know magic had like the gamma cards i think they call them which were whatever they were called they were like the early almost i i liken those more to like the print and play cards that sorcery had where it was kind of like just the game designers mocking up cards, you know, printing them out and just testing gameplay in the very early days. And Sorcery kind of did that as well, too. Like they actually offered print and play files to the community where they could go to their Kinkos or whatever, just print them on their home computers, cut them up and like play with those cards, which is mm -hmm. different than you're right. Like, so in a pure sense of perversion, like what well, you got to start with, what is the intent of the card of, yes. of sample cards, yep. which is to test from your manufacturer or maybe several if, you're, if you haven't decided yet um the quality of the cards and it could be anything from color saturation to um you know like the, the cleanness of the cuts the rounding of the corners you, you, there's different parameters you can experiment with before you finalize that for release so obviously sourcing went through that cycle i'm sure all tcgs do that the, yep. so the matter is like do you offer those to consumers or not and clearly so MetaZoo, um, I don't know, do you know how MetaZoo actually offered those in their first Kickstarter or at any point along the way? I'm not familiar with how they were offered to the public. So I think Mike, from what I've heard, um, gave them out to different people in the community who um, asked for them and, and different supporters very early on before Steve Aoki or anyone else got in the game. But it's interesting, there's a bunch of comments on the MetaZoo uh, Kickstarter where there's a thing where uh, you, if you backed at a certain backer level, you could get your own sample card, like printed whichever one you wanted and signed by an artist or something. 
And uh, mm -hmm. I think they were originally intending to do that. And correct, like someone in the comment or you know live chat would have to correct me there, but I did see a couple people saying they didn't get that or something, or I think that had to be changed. But I know mm -hmm. that product was offered to the customers um, for the Kickstarter, but also I think it's just given out to you know random people. Um, but yeah. uh, I don't know if the official number stated were, or I don't know if an official number was stated for the amount of sample cards uh, that were released. I think Mike Waddell okay. really said something about it in a Rudy video, but okay. I don't know. Yeah, I, I was just, I like, yeah, like I say, I was going on eBay and people would say pop 100. So I don't know if they were bullshitting or if there was like some of these were known quantities. Um, so in sorcery, I think it's been like, so let's just start with like how they were offered, what was offered. So in the Avatar of the Realm pledge, when he actually went to final Kickstarter, there was four tiers, the forest high pledge tiers get uh, 12 packs each, right? So there's 48 packs there. Um, and then there was a collector tier, which is like the next rung. Um, and that was 24 people could pledge for that and they each get four packs. Um, so that's what, 96 packs in total. And then there was a um, sorcerer tier, I think it was called, where you get a booster box and one sample pack per pledge. So there's 100 of those. And that's how they were included in Kickstarter. Um, beyond that, so I think like you could speculate on why they included those in there. I, I think it's um, like you say, it's the highest rung collectible. And that's where like, I think that's debatable because I think it is like a very small niche of people that actually care about these and some people value them very highly. Um, but I think like 95, I'm throwing out a number, like high 90 percentile really don't care about sample cards. And the people that are going to find out about the game later, I think they will still covet the alpha foils and curio cards and the, the mainstream alpha release product. Um, more so than the samples, they may, may not care about samples. And I, I know because like the high end collectors, they like the rarest things, right? And the first print of things. I think yeah, the wouldn't people that be the that highest are into tier? That, yeah, but I think like the people that are into that is like a small percentage of the market segment is what I would argue. So I think they were included in those highest pledge tiers because of, um, you know, just like, for, because I think those were like marketed to the hardcore collectors. Like you got to think back, like who would pay $10,000 at a Kickstarter or $2,500? It's probably your most hardcore enthusiasts. I mean, and sure, it's going to be like speculators, right? That some people just like top pledge every Kickstarter and, and hope to flip it. So you get those, but you also get your hardcore collector enthusiasts. And I think those were included because they are, it's also fascinating because the development of the game was like so raw at that point. Um, so there's been tremendous change in actually the fundamental card design, everything from the title to the game mechanic, the flavor text, all the different elements of the card, even the rarity level of many yeah. of these cards. So I think it, it that's the, there's, I, and I don't know if that's true for MetaZoo. I want to say maybe the MetaZoo samples are more representative of the alpha. So you get like a kind of like a true first print uh, in the same design, same everything as the actual mainstream card. Whereas sorcery, you can have major fundamental differences where these cards aren't playable. Um, you know, they could be fundamentally dramatically different. Well, I think and some, I think, aren't are even going to be able to. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Okay. But, uh, yeah, and these, these are going to be unplayable ultimately. Yeah, one too. sec. I, I want to yeah. get into sorcery, but I, I definitely right. I, I want to just backtrack real quick. And just uh, so like the perversion in the industry with sample cards, 
essentially like you were saying, which, you know, I was pointing at you because I was like, yep, yep. Like <laughs> basically their intent in beginning was just to uh, print them from the manufacturer in a small batch to really test them a little bit and make sure that the templating yeah. is right and everything like that, quality control. Four years mm -hmm. ago, that's basically what they were. And they were kind of like a misprint in oddities to collectors, but they weren't really seen as like too desirable from what I've seen in the industry. Four yeah. years later in 2023, well, mainly in 2021 and 2022, a lot of people were just going crazy over sample cards. Like if a Kickstarter to sample cards, investors knew that they made money and tendies on metazoo and others so that you know it, it enticed them to get into it it's just it's just a, yeah. a a cultural shift towards you know sample cards having monetary value and being very enticeable to high-end collectors like you were saying like a lot of players mm -hmm. they don't really care as much for the higher end cards you know they just want to play the game right and right. you know but they become collectors over time or what have you you, you say all these stuff but anyway it shifted mm -hmm. from a random misprint oddities to a high tier collectible. Now the question yeah. after that is what are the impacts on each TCG that has sample cards and is this good or bad? And when I say good and bad, those are very subjective terms, but I'd say like, mm -hmm. or is this good or not? Right. And good is like, well, does this help the game in the long run? What are the long-term effects? And that's where I just went off on so many different tangents in my video about just random, all these different, you know, topics, because, you know, there's so many different aspects to that answer that it's unanswerable. You know, I, yeah. I can definitely say what I think and my opinion, but definitely, you know, uh, I think sample cards will work for certain games and won't work for others. Uh, and they have to be done in certain ways and given out to the public in, in different ways that, you know, uh, is conducive to their strategy, I guess. But, you know, at the end of the day, that was just kind of where I left off. Like, I think we can all agree that, and you, you've probably seen it, like sample cards four years ago, they weren't here. Like people yeah. didn't have too much market. Now there is one. And now we can like analyze mm -hmm. it, right? Yep. Okay. Oh, my bad. I just wanted to <laughs> straighten that out first. And in yeah. my video, I was just saying it in general, like overall mm -hmm. general in the whole industry, but oh, going into sorcery. So um, Eric yeah. back in, was it March uh, 2022, uh, started the Kickstarter and got- Yeah, the roughly around then. Yeah. Okay. Has he stated, yeah. so for sample cards for sorcery, um, the biggest question I've honestly had in, and I think other people in the community might have had is how many are out there. And I don't mm. know. And the, here's where we get this weird type of scenario where, you know, they are samples. So you could print a bunch of them and, and it's okay because you're, mm. you just play tests and stuff. Yeah. But if, unless the creator has said like, Hey, we only printed a certain amount. Like, have you heard of uh, back alley mages? No, they uh, recently uh, released their product mm -hmm. and they say, our sample packs are one out of 750. So I thought that was kind of cool. Mm. It like said the total amount, but yeah. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on like the outstanding samples? And do you think there are more that got printed that weren't released to the States or just do you think um, it's relatively? Yeah, low? I mean, I think it's probably, so you got to look at the fundamental use case of sample cards I and mean, the company printed them, you know, the fundamental, purpose to print them is to test the quality of the card with your printer. So yes, of course, the company printed some unknown amount that they kept within the company. Who knows what they did with them? Um, I don't think they mass printed them. So there's been some anecdotal information. And um, 
like statements in the discord and I could call them off or just read them off to you. Basically. I went, I went like researching this. It was like, I, I remember like in the past few months, there's been some talk of this because everyone was like, Oh, I want to get my sample cards graded. And that's where you start getting into like, you know, plussing up your valuation and trying to high grade them and flip on the market and stuff like that. Right. Oh, for sure. So, then, so some like one of the company employees, I won't say who, but someone working on the team, um, basically said that there is not enough sample cards to establish a grading basis, you know, and I know they were looking into um, eventually, you know, offering grading or, you know, looking, talking to BGS and PSA and um, the major players to figure out like what it takes to get their game um, gradable with them. Right. And it, mm -hmm. and they said it like, it's like a case of cards establishes a baseline. So in this game in sorcery, a case would be like six boxes. Um, so, you know, they, the company made statements saying there are not, they don't think there's even enough to establish a grading baseline, which is kind of anecdotal information to say that like, there's probably not even like six boxes worth of sample cards out there to do that. Um, they also said that any, um, I think the way they worded it is like any of the cards you've seen open publicly is pretty much what's out there. And um, so we know again from statements in discord and also YouTube events, there were four um, so this is where I get back to the funnel one to use case. One is the test of printer. The other was to get it out to social media influencers, YouTuber types to demonstrate the product on stream. You know, yep. so we saw like Red Zone Rogue do that. We saw he got like 12, 12 packs at one point. Um, there was like a live event with one of the company employees in Red Zone Rogue yet again, where they actually opened um, pre-contact sample packs. So there's like booster booster box sample packs and then like the pre-contacts uh, mm -hmm. samples. Um, which is kind of like a learn to play type um, product. And then there was like four other, they said at one point there was like three or four other YouTubers that got a set of the pre-contacts, right? So for the packs, what we know from the packs is there was a booster box given a team covenant and they opened those and they did like a video series of three or four videos where they opened those on stream. But that pack, th that box that they got wasn't the, original samples right that was like some other like artist something or am i wrong well yeah so there's two there's two versions and just the community okay. coined them silver packs and art packs because there was the like <laughs> so the silver packs they were just printed in packs with no art design on the pack itself okay so there's it's just literally silver you know it's plain um so they call those silver packs red zone road got 12 of those pretty early on and yep. then um Team Covenant got a booster box that had the art design printed on it. Um, so the company then later said that the first print was to test the quality of the card itself and the print itself, right, with mm -hmm. the Chinese manufacturer. And then the second print was more about packaging. So the presumption is it was the same print file, meaning the same um, cards. Like it wasn't all 400 cards that's going to be an alpha because this was early on in development. And do but we know what printer it. that was? It's a printer. It's a, some printer in China. I mean, I don't know. Was the printer in China the one? Is that the same one they're doing the Alpha product with? Yeah. But I thought yeah. they had to change their printer. Like they were doing manufacturers in March, and then somewhere late in in 2022, they released that. Okay, we're going with another manufacturer. Is that now? I I haven't seen any evidence of that. I mean, there was there was like an image that surfaced in the Discord a lot as early as last. October, November timeframe, 
and uh, it happened to have like a invoice or like a customs paper and had some Chinese lettering on it. So we know like as early as then, which predated sample cards and it actually had a picture of like what looked like a box of sample um, cards and some packs stacked up to indicate that they were thinking Chinese printer as of then. And I'm sure they were looking into other alternatives, but there's no evidence to suggest that they actually printed with another alternative. So. Oh, maybe I'm maybe yeah. I have my wires crossed. I thought later in 2022 <clears throat> they announced that they're going with another printer. Like they had thought of doing other ones in the past, but like switched. I think. I mean, I think they were definitely looking into the viability of Cardamundi. I mean, it's kind of obvious that's what most upstart games go with, especially you know Ericsson MT Vintage MTB the MTG guys. So he knows that they have a high reputation and. Oh, but yeah. always a I good think, choice. Yeah, but I think he made comments that the backlog was so extreme with them that he couldn't possibly print with them and go to market this year or anytime soon. It might have been like, a, I don't know what it was, like 12, 18 months plus, who knows, just speculating, right? So I think it's been the Chinese printer since day one in the community. Some people that are less involved in the community may have speculated incorrectly on that and put out some in, in, um, inaccurate information. So first print silver packs, that was for card quality. Then they printed again because they had it shipped in the booster box to test like literally like what it would feel like, like how tight the, the packs were in the box, make sure they don't move around in shipping. When you open it up, what does it look like? What's the pack opening experience like? So that, you know, Eric's very meticulous. He's going to great lengths to make sure the experience is as oh, yeah. possible. So I printed 29,000 booster boxes. You better, yeah. you better have a good <laughs> So that's what the art packs were about. Um, there's a guy on the stream here, Wizards Den, that did some. He's he's like an engineer, you know. So he's got a microscope in his lab at home, and he he was. I think in one of his videos, he was talking about it, how he thinks in the silver pack. If I got this right, they were printing um, on the card layout from back to front, and then in the art packs, they went front to back. It's a different blade direction, right? And I think the company also made some com um, comments about this in a recent update that they're gonna cut the cards. Uh, front to back or top to bottom. So it's as clean as possible on the face of the card. Um, gotcha. So that might be a little nuance. I mean, long story short, I think they essentially said that the silver and the art packs are the same. Um, but they've also said that like what we've seen publicly is what's out there. So there's reason to believe that there's less art packs than there are silver packs and the silver packs are going to be what's in Kickstarter. So we're going to okay. have 244 more packs of those across the three pledge tiers to get those. Were there any other samples other than that? So, so far we have mm -hmm. the silver packs and then the, which you estimated as six booster boxes and then the art packs in booster boxes. How many of those yeah. do we have? So we have six boxes of silver packs and then yeah. how um, much art? Yeah, I think Rob, the, the six, the, the comment was more so that there's probably not enough out there to establish a grading baseline. So I'm interpreting that to mean that there's roughly maybe six total booster boxes printed in aggregate. Um, so that's just to say that I don't think Eric has like a closet full of like 10 cases of sample packs. And I know like they did not publicly disseminate more than the four sets of pre-cons, um, the one set of pre-cons that they opened on stream and ended up actually giving away to community members, like in lots of like seven cards, single cards, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, so the, the, to answer your question on the art packs specifically, there was one booster box of those given the team covenant. 
And then there was a video where a company employee was holding like a sealed box of those. And then what ended up happening later, like in recent months, um, that employee sent out one pack to several different people that helped the game in some way. So I actually received the pack myself because um, I've been very intimately involved in the game in many ways. And then there's other guys. Hell yeah, man. Yeah. You've been uh, so, doing yeah, so, for that game. Yeah, so that was exciting for me. And, you know, keeping that sealed is kind of my personal collection. But I know some other people also got one, and they helped in different aspects. Um, you know, so it was like one per a random lot. Not random, but various people that helped, right? It's not like a large quantity. It wasn't several packs or a booster box or anything like that. So yeah. long story short, we only know about two art pack booster boxes. And um, one has been given to Team Covenant, and another was kind of like, I think that company employee opened up his own box, and I don't know if it's his or if it was intended to give to community members, but he gave out a bunch of those from that box. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, yeah. the the one thing I'll comment with <laughs> is, or uh, maybe I'll make a couple comments, but uh, the employee is saying that it's not you know enough to go to the grading companies. I mean, like I, I know there's been stories with F Flesh and Blood, right? It was out for an entire year, had three sets at the time, and people were uh, sending their cards to get graded. I think it was uh, PWC, right? And they sent them back yep. and said, nope, we can't grade this. We'll take your fee, though, because we, we don't know how to grade that game. And it's like they had 16,000 boxes at that time for each of these sets. And uh, they just, you know, I, I guess you, I don't know how hmm. you go in the back end with that and everything to get them to understand how to grade stuff. That's outside my scope, but. You know, yeah. it, and I, I definitely see how you draw that conclusion, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's just too, too, I, I have a weird mind, man. I just think through stuff and I'm thinking, man, mm -hmm. if I was in Eric's shoes and I'm yeah. spending six figures on contracted artwork for my TCG that I've wanted to make for my entire life and I spent six figures, I'm not going to spend mm -hmm. less than three figures to get sample cards, you know, like. I'd want like a good amount to like give to friends and family or just to like, you know, play a couple games, get like a good card pool. But, you know, I, I'm, I could yeah. be completely wrong. Like, and, and even if he did that, right, I would have no problem with that. It makes sense. That's, that's right. what I do. And it's not like when you're printing them, you think, oh, this is going to be really highly desirable in the future. It's like, no, it's like, I just want to test my, my game. So yeah. that's how I see stuff. But Again, like if they released a statement or something or, or said something and they, they don't by no means don't have to do that. But that would yeah. give me more confidence, I think, personally. Yeah, that's fair. So but like so let's say they had a few more cases that they use for test purposes or gameplay you know, purposes. Do you think that's significant to the valuation on the public market? I mean, to me, I would think that that is low probability to ever see the public market. And even if it did. Like really in the grand scheme of things, if we saw, let's call it six cases, we, we thought there was one case, but it's really six to 10. Does that really matter? I mean, it don't, I don't, it, I don't it, think it's that relevant regardless. The only time it becomes relevant is if they didn't print based off of rarity. I think I remember in the Team Covenant stream them saying like, the rarity distribution isn't what is gonna be in the final product. And that was probably just like a disclaimer but uh, yeah. like if they like, let's say they printed um, just like one of each card, like 
or like let's say they printed uh 20 of each card and they put them in all the booster boxes and they probably didn't i think you did some math where you like looked at the rarity distribution it looked like for red zone rogue he yeah. was getting like a good rarity distribution but if they did something yeah. like that you could have an abnormal amount of like the higher tier cards versus the lower tier cards but uh yeah, yeah i mean it, i mean it, it just depends what uh you know how, how much i guess but if it's mm -hmm. a couple more cases i i, I can't see that materially infecting or uh, affecting the market you you might have some yeah. collectors who had previously purchased speculating and then like oh my one of 10 is really a one of 20 but you know mm -hmm. maybe that's not too much of a bother i mean if if yeah. sorcery goes to the moon over the next five years i don't think they'd care <laughs> but yeah right you know it's still it's still <laughs> well, it's still too close to call in my opinion <laughs> yeah and so that point on like randomization and how they were printed and how they were collated in the packs like i was actually confused about that at one point along the way too because there was a statement i don't know if it was one of the team covenant guys or where it came from but i, I somehow got that impression as well that maybe the art packs were like randomized or not printed like you're going to get in the alpha product but um i think what was meant by by that i think that comment was misconstrued and what was meant that was that the purpose of the art packs was different from the silver packs and then that was later clarified that the silver packs was to print card qualities specifically and then the art packs was more about packaging so i don't think there was like a randomization difference or anything like that and the the evidence of what we've seen open on stream and like in some actually um, Ted's basement YouTube channel opened up a pack recently, and so did this guy um, Chase that did the um, like a promo video. He's like really great at video editing, so he did like a Q and A event early on with Simon from the company, and then he did a um, video. But those two guys opened one pack. Team Covenant opened the whole box of the art packs, and they were all exactly like the distribution we expect in Alpha, where you get um, three exceptionals, and then there's like a elite or a unique slot. And then there's 11 ordinary cards and 15 cards in total. Gotcha. Um, the one interesting, and then same with the silver packs from Red Zone Rogue. The one interesting there it, uh, point there is that one of his packs did not have the hit slot. It, it, there was only 14 cards, and he didn't. He got three exceptionals, um, the 11 ordinaries, and there was no elite or unique. So hopefully oh, that doesn't. Okay. I think that was just a mistake. Hopefully that doesn't happen to Kickstarter backers <laughs> if they open their pack and and don't find the hit. You know, but. Yeah, it is an interesting point because, like, you know, the fundamental purpose is to test the quality of that printer. Um, so to include them, the question is, like, should you or should you not include them in premium Kickstarter pledge tiers? And I think, I don't think the company has, like, said to me privately and the others, um, some of the employees and things, they, like, they never expected sample cards to blow up like this and yeah. be worth a ton, you know? And maybe that was naive of them because, like, if you insert something rare in your highest pledge tiers, um that's going to establish a premium i think just in the nature of today's tcg economy well, especially right? with all the other precedents that were set with all the other tcgs yeah and especially metazoo as well as the poster child for it it's like mm -hmm. it kind of does you know lead into that but but i yeah. i could see like anyone like you put a thing on kickstarter and you don't know if it's going to be fully funded you know yep yeah so if you take that at face value and it wasn't about you know I think you made a point in your video that, well, part of it is like, I think you tried to cram a lot into the top tiers to make them valuable and justifiable to spend $10,000 in the very top pledge and then 2,500 in the next tier. Um, so that was an inclusion. I don't think that like when he priced out the individual components, I mean, the top tier had one of the elemental avatar paintings, which is like a larger oil painting by one of the top artists that did a lot of the premium cards. 
And then um, the collector tier had like smaller artwork. So it was that, you got like a few cases of cards, a full set of artist proof cards and things. And the sample cards were like another, I, I genuinely think that they, again, maybe naively, but kind of innocently threw those sample cards in, um, not expecting them to be like the top high end collectible. And then Simon was like doubling down on that in the discord and saying like, you know, and this is like when sample cards really started blowing up. They're like, we want alpha to be the, the coveted um, collectible. I mean, the cat's out of the bag at that point, but long story short, my point is I think they had genuine intent that that would be a desirable collectible item for like true passionate collectors that wanted that piece of early development history. Right. But in today's economy, you, you don't get to choose. And that's <laughs> Rear the shop is going to blow up. Right. So, yeah, and that's the shift yeah. I feel is in the past they were seen as like an oddities type thing. Yeah. Now they've shifted into the you know the top tier collectible. It's 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 a very fascinating thing, and you know I feel like it, it, it the the one pro I see is it does reward early adopters. Like early adopters get like you know a pack of samples, and you know that's kind of their reward for getting in um, early. But uh, mm -hmm. it you know it does siphon money from the alpha product um and you know will like reduce the you know the value of of that um long term because people will, the big collectors are like well why do i buy alpha I'll, you know i want the the sample cards so you you have that effect yeah, I mean, but you know it, extent, it is what it is. i yeah. think like again i think it's a niche you know so i really don't think it will affect the alpha valuations and not um, at all i mean it might since there's like public data points of sourcing cards being very valuable, it might help increase Alpha's valuation as a whole. But I don't think it diminishes the value of Alpha cards relative to to um, sample cards. Because again, I think it's a niche. Like you, you keep calling it like the top end collectible, and that's where I like fundamentally disagree. I, I think there's a niche um, part of the of the market segment that actually cares about them, and I think the vast majority would be like. They're not even playable. I mean, sure, they were the first print. Like, so all the players, they're going to care about stuff you can play, right? They're, if they're not collectors, some are both. And so, like, the high-end collectors, that is a niche, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then people that spend a lot of money on, um, you know, the highest-end cards, that is a niche. It's a very small percentage of the overall population. So that's why I think it's not statistically significant enough to really impact anything else long-term. I think a lot of people simply will not care about this product. I respect the opinion. It's yeah. just like the way mm -hmm. I see it is you have like if you just have the in a microcosm of alpha boxes and sample cards, if you didn't have sample cards in sorcery, like if you take that out and we're in an alternate universe, the high end collectors would focus on the alpha cards and the rainbow foils and the really big hit. So the amount of money mm -hmm. that would have been put in sample cards, which at this point in time, it's what probably a half a million dollars, you know, like if, if you think about the total amount of sample cards, it's you know it's a pretty big market that would have been put into the alpha box so it does affect it in some way i think the big yeah. question is does sample cards entice collectors more and bring them more into your game and put more money into it to where it doesn't really you know affect it as much but um yeah. i mean long story short like i think both of us can agree it it rewards early adopters and it's like a nice you know collector's piece that you have yeah for sure yeah yeah, so I think it, it, it affects the high-end collectors, the high-end investor types, um, the stonkers, you know, like the people that want to go for the most rare, most valuable stuff. It affects that niche of people. 
Um, so yeah, I would agree. Like it divert, it could potentially divert money from Alpha from those people that might want to go get the sample cards instead. But I think the people that spend like that, um, they have the financial means to still buy both. You know, I don't think it. And again, like how much overall in the big, grand big picture does that niche of the high end big spenders really affect the grand scheme of things? I think it affects them and their choices, but it's not going to affect your average person, which is the vast majority of your market base. Um, it affects the the right. sealed product. So if people are keeping sealed product long term, like for flesh and blood, you know, you had the cold foil heart of Fandel that, you know, spiked in price. And yeah. then those booster boxes mm -hmm. followed suit because mm -hmm. that single price and that was the highest, you know, rarity collectible to get. So the sealed product went up. But if sample cards go up, the yeah. alpha boxes don't go up as much. And, you know, th this is nitty gritty and, and just a, a lot of just, you know, mind thinking, but it's not, you mm -hmm. know, reality. Uh, like, yeah. uh, again, like we'll need to see how it all materializes in the next three to six months. I mean, sorcery is going to yeah. have uh, an interesting uh, road mm -hmm. soon. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I think um, there's still like a lot of desirable chase in, in the alpha product itself. So like there's going to be, and this is like a sad day for me. Let me get a drink here. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> I'm getting over yeah. a cold, so my throat's dry. But oh, hope you get over Eric, it. Eric, um, <laughs> so Eric one day announced. At first, he he was like, he's old school. He's all about early '90s um, TCG era. There were no foils in early Magic, right, at all. So he's not like a big foil guy, cold foil guy, um, like a lot of the modern day collectors are, right? So initially, he was like, eh. I think he was thinking like legit, like he wasn't going to have foils at all. And then he did oh, wow. an extreme 180 and he was like, well, based on modern sensibilities and what people desire, you know, if I want to have a successful game and appeal to all markets, I should probably, you know, look into this foiling thing. And he, and he decided the entire set was going to have a foil variant. And there's like, that's smart. Yeah. <laughs> so, but there's going to be 400 cards in the set. And then the, the pull rates are like, um, I always get it mixed up if it's one in four or one in five packs for foils versus uniques. Um, but it's something on that order of magnitude. So the guys did the math, like on a print of roughly 30,000 cards, there's going to be, let's say, a few hundred um, foils of any given uh, foil. I mean, it differs based on unique, uh, elite, exceptional, and ordinary. But long story short, they're going to be very scarce. So there's like a lot of chase from that foil all the foils in alpha and then the reverse side is like a full art with no text boxes which is going to be awesome for like art lovers right yeah. um, so you got that and then you have this curio concept which we don't they haven't announced the rarities or exactly what these curios are but they're kind of in a way sample card like because they're supposed to be a homage to the development of the game in some way mm -hmm. so i think that means they could be sketch cards you know maybe sketches that were thrown away or like a sketch that evolved into the final painting it could be like type line text that changed or it, it would probably not gonna be a game mechanic unless they don't want it to be playable, but it's going to be like, it's going to be nuanced in a way that sample cards are where there are like distinct differences from what the, the actual alpha playable version looks like. Gotcha. Um, so there's a lot of chase in that alpha set. There's a lot of rarity uh, as well. So it's going to be very hard to complete a full set, especially if you're going for all the foils. And then like, I think they're saying like the, to go for all the curios is almost impossible. You're going to have to go spend money on the market or try trade and barter, you know? So I think Alpha is going to have a lot of value because of that intrinsic, like 
collector interest in trying to. So they're to, putting like lottery cards in it, which is the curios. Um, That's smart. The curios, yeah. They're, they're going to be like on order of magnitude of rarity, I think, comparable to that, where they're going to be. I, we have no idea what the distribution is. So I don't even want to say like one per case oh, yeah. or something like that because I really have no idea. Wait, they've only talked about the um, the pull rates of foils essentially at the different. Very How well. do you think the the market's going to materialize? <clears throat> I think that like that's kind of a good topic. So, uh, sorcery contested realm, the alpha boxes and the kickstarters coming out into the market. Uh, I think uh, the total amount that was raised was it like three million USD? Three, yes, I, it's a little confusing because of the it was in New Zealand dollars, you know, yeah. so it, it has to do with currency valuations and stuff. So, so let's call it three to four million somewhere in that range. Oh wow, and. Yeah. So the, a really big factor in this as well, and Flesh and Blood MetaZoo have this factor, is, you know, the, the Rudy hype train. So you've got, like, a really good portion of the people involved that are, like, Rudy fans, which I am, you know. But, like, what do you think the impact is going to be since the purchases were mainly in early 2022, the markets simmered down in the TCG realm? When all that product comes to market at the same time, like, of course, I, I think that people are going to misconstrue things as, like, you know, uh, not normal. But, like, TCG single prices always decrease the first three weeks uh, yeah. it comes out. It, it, you go from, like, no supply to a ton of supply. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so, the you know, the price dips from that. Like, how, how, how do you see things, like, leveling out and playing out? Do you think, like tons of this product is going to come to market or do you think you know a lot of it's going to be open and sold as singles what are you thinking um, on that point i think there's always like a lot of speculators in an alpha release of any product um especially in light of recent events in the whole tcd industry and as a whole but also the success of flesh and blood and then metazoo had its kind of like stalker period again use that term um so there's speculators that Yes, of course, like a lot of people just buy in and want to flip it. I know there's a lot of flesh and blood types, um, you know, from your community and stuff that are like, people love to play flesh and blood. They're super passionate about it. They love to collect it as well. Yeah. Um, so I've seen a lot of those same types of people getting into sorcery that either want some, some generally want to play it as like their second game and others, I think, see it as an investment opportunity and aren't as passionate about it. So I wonder like what percentage of those people are in it to kind of just flip it and fun, you know, because why not? You just speculate and yeah. fun the game you love, flesh and blood, go buy some flesh and blood cards, you know? So that, that's going to happen to some extent. But so, I mean, it's impossible to say because like it, it has to do with demand entirely. Like what is the genuine demand that's going to absorb that product or or uh, buy it to try to speculate and flip it, right? Um, so is there going to be enough demand to absorb that? It's hard to say with the sealed product, like 30,000 boxes is quite a bit, you know, compared to other games, I would say for sure. It's true. Um, but the rarity, like on an individual card basis, I think the foils are going to be very valuable because even if every single person opened their boxes and sold them, and it's, it's impossible, right? Like a lot of people keep this stuff sealed. Um, but let's say they all went to market with it. We're talking about like a few, they're all like on the order of rarity of the hard find though, right? That's which had like 500-ish copies from what I understand. Yeah, four to you're 500. Gonna, you're going to have many foils at like the unique level on that order of magnitude. So you're not going to see a flood of those sold as singles on the market because they're not going to be discovered for one and or they're not going to be sold because they're going to fall into the hands of collectors and people that think they're, they love them too much to sell them. So 
I think on an individual card basis, there's going to be value. And if that is true, then you would think that the sealed product should, should hold some value too, in my opinion. Well, what's uh, 29,000 <laughs> divided by like 500? Is that like, is that like 60, like one in 60 boxes per curio? Like a specific curio? We have no idea. I think, um, some of the guys in the chat here, like Wizards Den, like chime in. He had a really nice video about like how many um, foils you can expect at each rarity level. And he had some tables in his video um, that talked about like how rare those are going to be um, yeah. to pull. So, but curios, we have no idea what the pull rates are. So no one's even trying to guess at how many of those will exist. I'm talking about the foils and especially at the unique and elite level. Because like in each pack, there's only like one unique or elite slot. Although it's kind of interesting, I think what they said is that like in the, there's 11 ordinary um, cards in a pack, and in one of those slots you could actually hit a foil. So if I'm understanding correctly, I don't know if that still means one foil per pack or how these guys. I, I didn't crunch the numbers myself, but there's guys in the community that did the math on this, and um, this Wizards Den YouTube channel put out some of the data. He's he's an engineer. He's very good at math. <laughs> oh, nice. So yeah, he's got an interesting video where he kind of he put it out there. So I think, yeah, if there's demand for it and they're that rare, then they're going to have value. If they're that rare and there's no demand, still no value, right? So it's all about the demand side. Supply is going to be low, but demand is, dictates value. And finding Overall. actual demand yeah. is so hard. It's but like I, I just I've seen it in Flesh of Blood, seen it in Metazoo. When Rudy's involved in the beginning part of a game, when people like get on that hype train, it's like shooting heroin in the TCG. <laughs> like you feel this huge high at first, but yeah. then there's the inevitable crash, and the crash isn't due to you know player's disinterest it's just due to the drug that was infused into your tcg <laughs> at the beginning to get people yeah. up and you know i i think uh with uh you know sorcery with the kickstarter rudy i believe uh you know made a video about it mid kickstarter which you know got a lot of people on and you know i i think it's good that he's announced that okay you know i'm, I'm interested in this game i i i smell money here i think i can make yeah. uh some uh money with this but um just seeing how it's going to materialize over the next six months is interesting. I'll, I'll be fully transparent. Like I am on the $750 tier. I'm personally trying to, I'm going to collect an entire set of like just the normal uh, cards of the alpha. I'm going to try yeah. to do that. We'll see what happens. I, I got one of the sorcery binders. And I thought that was very smart that Eric did that is he made like the sorcery binder that you could buy. I, mm -hmm. I love like set collecting. So I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to try to, you know, sell a bunch of the maybe sealed boxes or other cards that I don't need onto the open market yeah. and try to at least recover my investment and get a free binder of cards, you know? And mm -hmm. I've done that in uh, several other TCGs. It's like, hey, uh, I think that this is a good uh, opportunity. I'll yeah. buy the product, try to flip some of it, keep some of it, yeah. or sometimes flip it all. But uh yeah i think uh it's just going to be interesting how it plays out i mean with flesh and blood yeah. and metazoo especially you had the unlimited product or uh i forgot what metazoo was called but like the second edition and then people just uh were really averse to that product and especially with it being in local game stores it just didn't sell as well because you know you had the alpha version i mean yeah. with uh sorcery are you gonna have like a beta version and do we know yet where and i'm learning this too like is the the beta version going to be sold in lgs's because at this point in time yeah. sorcery has a business model that is direct to consumer right you know a lot of the people mm -hmm. buying are stores and everything but what is the 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 future is it going to be more of like okay 
were selling to a distro. Distro is going to LGSs in the, like the U.S. and New Zealand. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, if I if I was if I were to be critical of the sorcery team, it's that we don't understand the roadmap with much fidelity whatsoever. Which at this point, so maybe they're holding off on for some reason, you know, until it's like they probably got to work out partnership deals and stuff. I'm sure they're not announcing for a reason, but we don't we don't know anything about the distribution strategy of beta to my knowledge. So there is going to be a beta to answer your question that alpha mm -hmm. and Kickstarter are synonymous. So we get that, let's say like they, they're still holding the first quarter um, of 2023. So like by the end of March, as, as far as we know right now, unless they announce another delay. Um, and then they've always said that they want to get beta out as quickly as possible to, you know, satisfy the demand of the broader market and grow their market. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I mean, there was some talk of making corrections from Alpha once there's like mainstream, a lot more players playing the Alpha cards. But at this point, I don't, I don't think there's time for that. I think like since things have been delayed, um, they've had that time for testing and they're ready for beta. So I think they're going to meet that and probably you'll probably see beta within a few months of Alpha release. And but it's got to go to LGSs, right? Like they can't um, do another I so, Kickstarter. Yeah. I just yeah. don't know if they'll also. Yeah, and I think there's been some indications um, you know, like our mutual friend, Jason at deck edge, he, um, recently made a comment that like, great seen, guy. Yeah. I love that yeah, guy. Definitely. Like he's seen indications that PhD is going to carry it. One of his distributors. Right. So I assume he's talking about beta. He could be talking about Ethereum legends, which is going to be the next set to follow up, uh, beta. But that tells me that they are going to work through the major distribution hubs and those and probably through LGSs, Right. And why would you not like nowadays, you got to get it into the LGS. And like these cards are so visually appealing that there's going to be great word of like just i think people are going to be impressed by the quality and the art and stuff like that and that'll garner some interest and then of course the gameplay needs to hold up but they're going to want to distribute through the lgs is what i believe they, but they haven't said like any details on that publicly <laughs> you know like yeah. which markets you know are they going international right away is it you know how many lgs's are on board i don't think the lgs's even have great insight just yet um yeah and that like that business not. model too is like tough to analyze at this point and you know especially if they're only doing like one set a year which i understand the rationale of it and that type of artwork um the oil paintings and and other things on canvas take you know a little bit longer um to produce but um i think that's gonna yeah. be like a real hold up and when i'm thinking about sorcery contester realm if i was like eric right i think his competitive advantage he really needs to figure that out because you know flesh and blood right is all about competitive play it's building a game that's competitive play of course it yeah. has a lot of other great things about it i love the game but competitive play getting people in person to play the game is like their imperative metazoo is doing everything but selling their tcg it's <laughs> selling all these peripheral products getting all this revenue sorcery i think they should be in the business of getting artwork on their platform and making better deals with the artists in order to do, I think they really need to partner with you, Mike, you've been, you've been killing it, man. Like I, I think they, here's, here's the contract. And I'd like to hear your thoughts. Right. And, and this is how I think I would like to see their business model is they go yeah. up to artists say, Hey, but Hey, bud, you make a painting for us. We'll pay you a hundred bucks. We get all the rights, the copyright to your artwork and we will sell it on our platform through you, right? Sorcery gets 
and then like the artist gets 70 percent, you get 10 percent. all 400 artworks go through you and then it's sold on your platform for like three thousand plus dollars right so they get the commission of 70 percent of that and they yeah. get like artist proof cards like 50 of them and what you do is you focus on artists that are up and coming and not mm -hmm. very well known so like that type of deal is very enticing that's a good amount of money for them sorcery yeah. has a platform that makes art important <laughs> so i yeah, think they need to leverage true. that in order to acquire intellectual property because mm -hmm. right now they don't own any of the ip from what i i've heard it's all contracted yeah. so they don't own the ip so in the, if they do that going forward they'll own the ip they'll turn their six-figure expense of getting artwork into mm -hmm. a six-figure revenue <laughs> and then yeah. you know they'll also get like a bunch of art you know coming to them somebody might have 10 pieces of art in their closet and say hey i've got these 10 if you're interested and then like you know you flood uh like supply into them what do you think yeah. about that concept that i i've thought um, about the last couple of days yeah there's a lot of complexities i mean they they let the artists retain the copyrights you know so they all sell in different ways um i actually i work with a lot of the artists already to help them sell their art through my forums right um, just independently. I, I have nothing to do with the company. They 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 are very professional and good to not like get involved with the secondary market, you know, and I respect the boundaries too. I don't ask them for inside information or anything that could influence things. Um, so I do my own thing independently and I work directly with many of the artists to help them sell their originals and do special commissions on hand embellished prints and things like that. Um, and they that is possible because they own the copyrights to their own work. You know, and I think in some cases, like Eric purchased some or he acquired some himself. He's a collector <laughs> at heart, too. So he's creating this great game and he's like cherry picking his favorites and, and making deals with artists. And I don't know what the terms are, like you say, like on the licensing. Um, so the, the artists own the copyright. I, what I don't know, I, I don't like really press the boundaries of what their contractual relationship is with the company either. So I don't know if they're restricted from using that art in other games or like you say, like, you know, um, Sorcery doesn't have any IP because they're allowing the artist to have the copyright. I don't know. They could have an exclusivity to say, like, you can sell your painting. You can sell prints of your painting. You sell T-shirts, whatever the hell you want. Right. Mm -hmm. But you cannot use it in another game. There might be a contractual term like that. That's probably what I would do. Right. But again, like, if you're the artist, why would you do that? It's kind of weird. And why would some other game want to use the same art as another game? So maybe it's kind of just a non-issue. Um, like Fr Frank Rosetta artwork. Yeah, well, the Frazetta one, that's, no, you know, that's different. You got to, yeah, yeah. you know, a deceased artist estate. and his estate, yeah, they license it to whoever because they're a business, yeah. right? So good on them. Um, you lose some control and that, that agreement was not exclusive. Yeah, so you run that risk. If if you consider it a risk, I thought it was amazing for Sorcery because you now got like oh, all so these, much press, so many new people discovering Frazetta and are like, oh shit, it's also in this other, like I love MTG, I love Frazetta and what is this other game that's also using it, right? So ton of free publicity that that was a huge windfall for them actually in a yeah. strange way but yeah i don't know i, I think it's different because like do you think artists, artists are sign over the rights to art paint it like how long does it take them to make artwork like uh just uh, estimate and then do you think they would want like care if they did that uh yeah i think they value owning the copyright and having the freedom to market it and sell it how they 
team fit, you know, like if, if they were forced to like do it through the company, I think that's disadvantage. It's not advantageous to the artist. And there's a lot of different personalities too, right? Like some are very business savvy, others are not. So yeah, it might appeal to like a young up and comer artist that's not like business savvy and that's convenient. They can make a quick sale. They can make a few thousand dollars. That's great. Probably more than they would usually make outside of like a TCG. But for oh, others, sure. like you, you have some MTG like um, alpha artists in this game, right? So a lot of those have not even sold yet because they see the buzz around the game. They're optimistic. They, they've lived through like the huge boom in magic. And they're like, while that's like one in a million, there's enough buzz around this game where it's probably smart to try to hold off, not sell now. And, and they can afford to, right? Like some of the younger people, this is their primary source of income. They needed to sell. But like maybe a more established artist, they already have a premium value on their work. They already have like a built-in customer base. And they know this game is definitely going to grow. Like oh, so, we, 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 it's easy to forget that we're pre-alpha. So many people don't even know this game exists though. And Rudy doesn't cover it. And he said he's not going to until it comes out. So he, I really think he's going to blow the doors off like after release, do a couple openings and like a ton more people. Like how many people really saw his video from a year ago? He did like one or two videos. He did the Frazetta announcement essentially. And then he really didn't touch it that much um, since then. So if he starts doing some pack openings and stuff, that's going to expose a whole new market. And then, and then through like the, um, just like networking effect, I think it's really going to snowball. And then when it shows up in LGSs and the art looks beautiful and the cards look great, that's going to raise yeah. eyebrows. And then if that's a better time to sell art, right? Like when things are hot and more people, there's more buyers. It's just a larger Sell when it's high <laughs> and buy when it's low. Yep. Well, it's a function like... of market, market size too. You know, the yeah. market's going to grow. So. Yeah. Well, going back to though, like, I think what Sorcery does great though is they put artists on pedestals and put it into a global space right so i think eric's doing like a great job at getting a lot of the old mtg artists and a lot of really like high-end artists to do you know the artwork for the first set of his game but now yeah. he has a platform i think capitalizing on that platform is imperative because in 10 years you have to ask okay where do they want to be in 10 years do they not want to be able to like you know, print play mats with previous, you know, sets of, you know, cards because they don't own the IP anymore. Uh, you know, maybe like in 10 years, if, if they don't have any IP, mm -hmm. it's just an amortizing intangible asset on their books instead of a like, okay, this is like a, a premium asset that we have that's perpetual. And they, they mm -hmm. could even, you know, sell any of those, you know, uh, you know, down the line or when the business does, if he does want to sell the business in the future, at least he has the plethora of IP, you know, like flesh and blood. Yeah. I think people don't realize what they're doing, like that they're doing part of that is they own all the artwork. So out of eight sets, they own like thousands of images of their brand and they're just building it over time, I think. And for sorcery, like they're all about artwork. Like that's one of the biggest, you know, things that uh, the game really promotes. So yeah. trying to get up more of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I know what you're saying, though, like a lot of artists may be business savvy, so they want to do the business end, too, and they don't need sorcery. But I think sorcery is a, just a great marketing tool and platform to get like artists that might not have, you know, have as much outreach and stuff to sell their paintings. But yeah, that's so, just yeah, how there's, I there's see definitely it. pros and cons. I think you would also have artists that would not do this project if they did not get to keep their copyright. Because That's that is extremely valuable to the artist, you know, and also 
I think the company isn't completely forfeiting our IP. I mean, they are printing playmats and they were using like the, um, the pack, uh, art design is the design you see on the binder that they're selling with Kickstarter. So oh, that is, that is about, actually the original painting. It's a time so they, period, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the terms are. Like clearly they have the rights right now to print that artist's worth, even though that artist owns the copyright. Um, yeah. I'm just saying, like, maybe there is a clause in the contract that says, like, hey, for the next five or 10 years, we can also, you have the copyright, you can do whatever you want with it, but we also reserve the right to do it. And that's what they did with the Alpha. They have playmats that have the, the Alpha logo on it. So, you know, it's from the Kickstarter, it's from the company. Um, so they haven't completely forfeited it. But yeah, I think that's a secondary issue. I mean, I think they got to make a good game and make sure that the um, card design is aesthetically pleasing that there's like the right chase balance, you know, for to appeal to collectors as well. And that's, that's first and foremost and fundamental and using top artists and that it's like, th this is the only game that does hundred percent traditional painting that I know of. I, I don't think that's happened since early magic, you know, so that in and of itself is a massive differentiator to art enthusiasts and collector types, you know, Whereas like flesh and blood, for example, is all digital. Um, I don't know if they've gone to some traditional recently or not, but I know I it started all, all digital. digital. Yeah. yeah. So that's a difference that matters to a lot of like art fans, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it, mm -hmm. there's definitely, you know, a niche for both, uh, artworks, yeah. but mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. But like, what do you think an oil painting that do isn't a part of sorcery versus sorcery? How much premium do you think that that adds like an oil painting for, like, I don't know, that isn't part of sorcery versus sorcery. Do you think it adds like 2000 or 3000 $4,000 to the painting? Um, it kind of cuts both ways, actually, because I think um, some of the artists I work with uh, sell paintings for like $10,000 plus outside of the oh, game wow. that's either published in other things, could be book covers, could be whatever. Sometimes it's not even published. They just have a market and they're a big enough, popular enough artist established in their career where they have buyers because it's... Well, there's a lot of factors that go into valuation, right? But like for others, like the, the up and comers, they probably, like Elvira just had a massive sale. She, we sold one of her paintings for $7,000 at auction oh, a couple wow. weekends ago. And that was, I'm sure that was like the biggest sale she's ever had. So she is quickly developing a massive reputation through this game. I wonder why that is. <laughs> yeah, so she does. Maybe it's she's sorcery. Like, yeah, so she's well known in the MTG Alters community, and she did tremendously well selling Alters cards, you know. But now she's doing full scale paintings. There's a market for it. It's tied to a game that's going to be published. Um, there's a lot of buzz around this game, so yeah, there's value in that. But yeah, so it's it's kind of different. I don't know. I think like some of the artists kind of undersold themselves that hadn't worked TCGs before. They'd have like that big market and sell much higher. Like this game art to them probably feels maybe even trivial in some ways compared to like other other works they've done that are larger or like more elaborate because like when you do a game design it's got to have a it's still they have the creative freedom to come up with their own concepts but it still has to fit within the concept of the card and the gameplay of that game piece right so it can't be some wild like intricate thing that doesn't resonate with how the card is supposed to work so they might be forced into more of more of a simplistic concept and I think that's happened. Like Severin is one of the artists I work with in France and she had some paintings she was selling for like, what was it? Like $500. I was like, why? And she was like, I sold another for $10,000 um, this year that was not in the game. 
And she was like, I just didn't think it was, she didn't personally value it that much because she didn't think it was like a very detailed, intricate piece of art, like some of her other $500 pieces. Yeah. But like, I'm sure someone would pay a few thousand dollars for that easily because it's tied to the game. And that's just like, Naivete. This is like early on. She she hadn't really worked with the TCG before. She didn't really know her value and like what value a game could create. So I think that's now shifted and like and the market's grown and people are paying um, you know, higher premiums for these artworks. And they're they're more and more scarce, you know, a lot have been sold already. So some are resales and things. So supply and demand, you know, market's growing and it's a unique opportunity to get hand painted art. You can really only find that in magic, I think. Because MetaZoo and I don't know what MetaZoo does. Flesh and Blood's mostly digital, like we said. You know, you can't go buy a painting. You get print, but it's different. So, yeah, yeah. And I, well, what do you think about the whole like expenses? So, didn't Eric have to pay like like six figures? I think you said in a video for like the the expense for all of the, uh, the you know the four hundred pieces of artwork. And you know, when yeah. you try to scale that every year, do you think that's going to be? It, do you think it's a larger expense than other TCGs? And do you think oh, yeah. having one set a year is going to be tough with that? Yeah, I think that the one one set a year um, is a risk. Like, <clears throat> it's unconventional, right? So it's one of those yeah. things we don't know how it's going to play out. And we don't know, like, it was just announced this guy, Ed Beard Jr., who was like another early... He's, he's much more than magic, so I hate to, like, pigeonhole people as, like, a magic artist because he hasn't done magic in 18 years. And now he's, like, a big-time, like, airbrush artist. He paints cars and trucks and vans and things. And he's, like, pretty famous and, like, does extremely well in that industry. But um, point being, like, that it was just announced that he's doing a mini set. So what does that mean? Is that, like, a set within a larger set? Or is there going to be a interim set between these one-year releases that's designed to retain player interest or like shake up the meta a little bit or something like that we don't know like they haven't said specifically they just came out and said like hey i was commissioned to do 10 artworks for sorcery it's a mini set and like so people's like minds are racing like what the hell does that mean mini set um so that one year i think it's like to me like i would say it's not completely written in stone it's somewhat a function of having to commission the art but is I it think like a also, supplemental set, you think? So you have a core set and supplemental, yeah. yeah. I think that's a possibility. But it could be a set within Arthurian Legends or something. We don't know. Um, but I think, like, what I'm getting at is right now it's one per year by necessity, I think, as a function of the lead time for paintings plus the size of the team, right? They they have a very small team. They can't design sets every three months. Now, they can if they're successful in this first year or two, they can expand the team and, and accelerate game developments. There's also logistics. They got to figure out how to work with their Chinese printer, see what their capacity is, and see if they can, you know, logistically deliver that quickly. And that that takes people and resources, you know. So I think they're just not postured to do it right now. But I don't think the door is closed on that. I could totally see them accelerating the cycle in the future potentially if it doesn't resonate, because it is a risk. Like, will people get bored once a year? Possibly. Will co other collectors like it because they don't have to spend money every three months and they can take their time getting a set, you know? So pros and cons. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's just, a, it does seem like a, a risk. And that's why if like, mm -hmm. I would definitely want to reduce that as much as possible, especially with the contracting, get artists that aren't, you know, as well known who want a platform, yeah. sorcery is that platform. You want some yeah. quick, nice money. Here you go. Like, you know, we'll, we'll help you auction off your thing. We'll do it. You worry about making art. 
We'll worry about selling your painting and getting it out there so people have an interest and know who you are. Like and like what you do on your site, it's you know, it's 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 nice. It's like you're adding voice to the artwork and explaining yeah. like what what it's all about. So yep. yeah. Yeah, I think I don't think there's any shortage of art artists out there. And he, he has a very like diverse mix. So <clears throat> while some of these are like MTG legends, right? There's others that almost all of us have never heard of before. And I think it's people that have done like heavy metal album covers. We know that's true. So like some of those are pretty well known, like Dan Seagrave. But there's others that I think like Eric literally found on ArtStation, just kind of like surfing around. If he liked the art and it resonated with him, he contacted that person. Or like, you know, we got the MTG altars scene, Elvira Shakarova, Kyle Kalzans, and Marta Molina all did altars for magic. And and like Eric's into vintage magic and doing custom card design and stuff. So he knew who they were and commissioned them. Right. So he can, yeah, I think he has like a mix of younger talent and like more experienced. And he's just going with like what resonates with these, the style um, he's looking for. But there's so many artists out there, man. Like, well, yeah, I don't think that's going to be a lot a of artists, goal. not many yeah. platforms, not many <laughs> yeah, platforms yeah. that can instantly get you famous. Like, yeah. he's it's got a, a really a, a good asset at his disposal. I think he just needs to lean really hard into that aspect of his business yeah. model. Cause like, like you, you know, more than sorcery than I do like flesh and blood, right? I can explain in one sentence their, their, their target market is people who want to play hundred percent great games, competitive gameplay, right? That's their focus. They do all this other stuff, but that's like competitive play and making a balanced, well-developed game for people to play is, is their focus. What is sorcery dude? What do you think? Like in one sentence, what do they do? What, like a differentiator compared to other games? Yeah, like what's their competitive advantage and target market? And like, like what are they trying to do and focus on? Because um, I think a lot of TCGs out there, they do this multi-tool approach, right? No one uses a multi-tool for daily use, you know? You're either yeah. a pair of scissors or you're a uh, kitchen knife. You know, you have specialty of use of, of how you cut and why you use it to cut, right? Yeah. I feel like a lot of TCGs out there, they say, I'm the multi-tool. I don't have a target yeah. market. If you have a wallet, you're my target market. Like <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. They, they go, they print adult stuff and kid stuff and, and they try to appeal to way too many people at once. It's like, yeah. I think that the best thing is like having a focus and like going hard into it. And when you do that, you have a competitive advantage. So I'm just kind of wondering what sorcery is. And I think that is the art, okay. but I don't know what yeah. you think. Um, yeah. So you get to answer that question from like a collector or arts enthusiast perspective. And then there's like the players would tell you something different. So I'll try to, I, like, I'm not as into the gameplay. I have three little kids, so I can't, I can't be playing games all the time. I got to choose. Right. So I yeah. choose to collect and be into the art. Um, so yeah. So from like one major differentiator is that it's all hand painted traditional art. So it's like an art project unlike no other you know, in that way. And that, that really makes a difference because you get a lot of like stylistic diversity and just appreciation for like the talents and the personalities that shine through from those artists adds a lot of character to the game. Um, it's not like homogenous or samey with like a, a um, style guide type approach like Magic does. Not, to, not that I'm trying to criticize Magic specifically, but a lot of games like try to fit into a lore theme and it pigeonholes the art and the creativity and the diversity of the art. So that is one that's massive. Um, the second is, um, I would say, like from a gameplay perspective. Yeah, we have one though. 
Oh, uh, one. <laughs> well, like, that's the collector from the gameplay. It's massively fundamentally different from a lot of TCGs with a grid-based concept. And yeah, there are other grid grid-based games, you know. But I think like so I don't play myself, but I know enough players from around the community, even like competitive fab players, that say there's one guy that's like all in on sorcery now, and he still loves and plays fab competitively, but he like says this is legitimately like his favorite game to play right now because it's so fun you know and it's well designed and like the use of the grid is very creative um you know captures his interest so i think it checks both boxes people always want to say the art and i'm just trying to like make sure people understand it's not all about the art i think they put serious thought and investment into the gameplay aspect as well and that's well, and flesh and blood isn't all about just the gameplay you know they have other yeah. things too like you can use a, a chef's knife to cut your hair you can use scissors to cut carrots but like i think that you know doing one thing and focusing on like uh, personally that's what i think and that's why i think eric should really yeah. focus in on the okay like art and like you know that as a platform i think if he tries yeah. to compete on gaining market share through player base i don't know yeah. if that's a a good strategy it may it may be i don't know what the gameplay is like i've never played the game but um like uh yeah i don't know that's how i see it's, it it's hand-painted art is the big differentiator and then it appeals like stylistically to like early 90s vintage magic sensibilities you know in this in the art styling and in like some of the things they're trying to accomplish. Like with those curios, we don't know what they are, right? You can't go on the internet and find a set list for this game. You gotta open the packs and find it. And like, people are gonna find it eventually and they're gonna go put it on the internet and show it on my Facebook group or wherever else in the discords. It's gonna get out there, but they're so rare that you gotta open packs to discover them. Just like in early nineties, you couldn't go on the internet, you know, it didn't exist. Yeah. Um, and you could get like Scry Magazine and things like that after <laughs> a few years and um, you find set lists and things. But <clears throat> that's a pretty brilliant way to capture that vibe of that era, you know. Do you think it'll be a more competitive or casual experience? It looks like a casual experience um, storytelling from what I've heard from Team Covenant. Yeah, and like I think it's getting that stigma because they call it a boutique game and they don't have – they haven't announced anything in terms of like a – a competitive play strategy whatsoever other than there's going to be like this champion promo card in the innkeeper pledge kit which i think is intended to be like a card you win um playing at your local store but i don't know from the players i've heard that there is and, and the company has said too that that is something they could turn on and go pursue in the future but for starters it's supposed to be more of a casual experience i think tabletop um there's not an infrastructure or like definitized plan to really make it super competitive in the near term. Yeah. I would definitely mark it as a casual, like storytelling, like an EDH type thing, get your friends over, have a couple beers, you know, yeah. admire the art. Yeah. But it's just that, um, I just want to be clear that it's not like, that's not to say that the game is not like very complex and strategic, not that it's like hard to learn, but I think there's a lot of like depth to the gameplay. Um, just with the mechanics and, you know, there's some merge effects where you can go under cards or drag them down and, and like voids you got to traverse and stuff. So there's some interesting things and in just the way you have to like strategically manipulate your game pieces around the board state um, and move your avatar and things like that, like win conditions for the game. It's not, it's not just like a 
Pokemon just screwing around. <laughs> I don't think yeah. Pokemon, maybe Pokemon has a competitive scene, so no, maybe it's like, get competitive, but it's not like super casual. Like and same with Flesh and Blood. Like, you know, yeah. even though I'm saying it's a competitive <laughs> gaming experience for, you know, older adults, yeah. it's it's also, you know, if you're having a couple beers and you want to make a janky deck, for sure you can do that. You can do a lot of other things. It's just, I personally think yeah, games need to have a target market focus. Like if you look at what Fab's doing with like competitive yeah. play, they've been on it constantly doing all these different tournaments constantly getting that out building their player base that's their target market like yeah. I, and i think it's it's working when you, when you have other games that just try to shotgun all these different strategies out there it tends to fall down the wayside it's not that you just f do one thing you do all the things but you try to get a competitive advantage of what like why does a person play sorcery and like mm -hmm like the main reason i don't know that that's just my thoughts yeah like in terms of demographic i think it most strongly resonates with like middle-aged people that were around for 90s era tcgs yeah so like magic types D D. someone said D D here <coughs> in the chat i think that's right and eric's kind of said that too like he's like 42 or something like that right i'm 41 so i'm kind of like midlife crisis throwback to my childhood playing magic in the neighborhood and it like resonates hard with me seeing the magic artists and the card styling and like the art styles and stuff like that. So I think it's strong, it resonates strongly with that group. That's probably their core target market, but there's also like a lot of younger players too. So <clears throat> I think that's kind of interesting. It'd be a good question for them. Like what, what appeals to them about it, you know, compared to like other alternatives on the market right now. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I don't know. Yeah, and I yeah. think honestly, speaking about MetaZoo, I think that's, I think they primarily are like this, where it's like, okay, is this a casual experience or a competitive, or is this a child's game or an adult game? And it's like, yeah, I think it's just making it so you're trying to appeal to everyone, and you don't you don't appeal yeah. to like one one type of thing. So I think I, personally, that's how I feel, and that mm -hmm. TCG should try to develop stuff for like a certain like what does yours do that no one else does or what are you the best at but um yeah. but yeah i mean it, it's it's cool to analyze too man there's so yeah. many different tcgs <laughs> coming up uh sorcery it's going to be interesting how it plays out i mean what do you think it was going to happen to the sample card market once the packs get out there um for the kickstarter like it looks like uh what 240 packs are coming out so yeah 244 it's a couple thousand cards that are coming into the market. Yeah. The current, how, what, what do you think the lowest auction is right now? And what do you think it'll be like later on? Like for just like a common yeah. card. Um, they all open at $200 for like the ordinaries. And there's only been like one that hasn't sold. So there's definitely like a healthy <laughs> interest in market right now. And I like run marathon. Like I just kind of funny. Like I did a couple of thematic marathons for like a week where I featured like all, cause I try to like feature the artists too. I write up like a little piece about the art, the artist, like when I run the auction. So I did one, like a homage to the legends of fantasy art. And it was like the magic artists and the D and D artists. And then I did one with like the up and comers or rising. I forget what term I used. So I did this for like a week. And then some guys were like, Oh, you did, like the market's going to get saturated and burn out and stuff. Um, but then like people wanted to sell, you know, so I, I've done like a marathon for the past, like couple of months, like every single day, I think for like months, you know, and, there, and there's still a healthy interest in buyers. So, um, that answers the question, like probably 200 is the baseline right now. What will happen when more supply comes on the market? Um, 
it, it totally depends on as more it's kind of interesting like some of the early bidders kind of got their fill they have their nice little collection of a handful or like a dozen cards and, and you don't see them bidding as much anymore but then they came back some of them after a few months but then others emerged you know so i think more and more people are finding about out about the game and their interest you know new buyers are emerging so there there's an interest in sample cards for sure where we started this video you know talking about that so will there be enough if there is growth in the game post-release will there be enough to absorb a few thousand dollar cards that that'll dictate price right so maybe i think you'll find like more duplicates of the ordinary rarity cards but i think there's so few of the like exceptional elite and unique that it'll if, if people like desire that niche product of sample cards there's not going to be like a big in, increase of supply of those specific cards because you gotcha. get three exceptionals per pack you get in each pack you get a unique or an elite right so those are very rare to pull 244 packs means like you can have 244 total cards unique plus elite right so when you factor in that there's like a few dozen elites and also uniques there might be like a few more copies that come from kickstarter it's not like there's going to be a big windfall and you're going to find like 10 copies of each one on ebay they're still going to be hard to acquire so yeah, maybe ordinaries could get soft, but if there's interest, I think the, the exceptionals, elites, and uniques could hold up. But yeah, that'll be interesting to see for sure. How many people open those packs? How many people sell them? Um, how much is, interest is there in chasing alpha foils and curios instead of sample cards? You know, like to your point earlier, does it divert cash from that or not? I don't know. I mean, could you uh, <laughs> contact the manufacturer and get a bunch of silver packs created that... uh are the same weight consistency and take the sticker off and put it on that other pack. I mean, yeah, at first there was like no sticker, so we're like, like you almost had to open them, right? Yeah. yeah, like there's no point in keeping them sealed. I felt like if there was no sticker or you know, some kind of identification protection, yeah. So I think the sticker was a good call, but I don't know. I think they were fundamentally intended to be like a desired collectible for people that want that piece of sorcery history and early development. I think there's like everyone thinks like everyone's a speculator and just wants to flip cards and make money. There's enough like genuine interest in people that just love collecting and like that is more valuable than money to them. I think those are there is like a percentage of those types of people that are buying now that don't see this as like the next MTG 2.0 and want to flip it for 10x. I think they generally want to have that early piece of history because they're really into the game and they, they won't resell it, you know, not in the near term. Who knows oh, long term? Like people sell for all kinds of reasons, but I think that just is easily dismissed in in the modern age where everybody assumes everybody's a dirty stalker, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, it all like it, it's going to go through the motions, and yeah, we'll see what happens with it. And yeah. I mean, I think I think you're going to be like inundated with ton, like well, uh, you know, much more supply because if there's only like I don't know uh, a handful, uh, you know, a small amount, a couple hundred samples yeah. now, the, and the, if you know, a couple thousand comes to the market, you're, you're going to be, uh, what is it? You're going to be doing a lot of auctions. Yeah. But I, like, I'll probably be doing like artist proof cards with the artists and, um, for like the foils, the high end foils and stuff like that too. So it'll be a yeah. mess. Oh, <clears throat> but, but I think some people are going to want to sell their uncut sheets and like cool stuff like that. And some of those premium kits, you know, like the people that are really more into other games and want to just flip this, Especially if there's value in it, they'll flip it to go buy more flesh and blood cards or medicine cards or whatever the hell they're into, you know? 
So yeah. it'll be a mix. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be cool to see how it all materializes. I, I think the biggest factor of success, though, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how many sample cards were printed. Um, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter a lot of things. It's just what is the business model and is it sustainable over the long run? And once we see that, I think we'll get a better picture. And after we have the 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 heroin hit from Rudy dissipate, yeah, and <laughs> then we'll get to see okay, what what's up with this and. You know who's really in it and who was there to flip it. I mean, I I'm yeah. flipping a couple boxes. I'm, I'm saying you know vocally mm -hmm. right now. I mean, it's just why not? And like I'm gonna collect a binder of you know the the set. That sounds fun. Seems like yeah. a good type of opportunity. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think you hit a good point there. I mean, Rudy creates tremendous exposure, but he doesn't guarantee you long term success. The game's got to be good. The company's got to make the right decisions. It's got to be collectible. Yes. I think this is a home run as a collectible. Like when I first heard about it as a grid-based game, I was like, eh, I've never like been into a grid-based game, you know, but the art like captured me enough to open my mind to that style of gameplay. And maybe that others will have that same effect. You know, like, I think it's like a home run collectible because the art is so top notch. It's all hand painted. It's that that is a massively unique differentiator that makes it really appealing. And the mix of artists, like their styles are just awesome. Like they have like really cool concepts and stuff. Um, and the chase elements are there in alpha to make it desirable to kind of chase sets. And there's enough rarity and balance in that regard. And then the game's got to hold up. Like, you know, like do people like to play it or not? That's what we'll see. You know, the early yeah. adopters are into it, but will the mass market be into it? You don't know until it's out there, right? Yeah, and I mean, it, so. it, I think it's going to follow a very similar trajectory to other games where, you know, early on alpha is printed, you know, it gets released to the market with the sample cards, and then tons of people bitch that the prices are, are too high, or, you know, they can't get the, the rarest cards to play in their deck, yeah. and there's not enough, and you get all these people right. reing, and then the beta comes out, and then the prices tank, and then everybody complains that too many cards are printed, and, you know... You, you have these cycles that occur in games that like, you know, I feel like just there's so much turbulence the first year or two years of a game. Like I've seen in Flesh and Blood and MetaZoo for sure. It's and and those two games especially are the ones that have had yeah, the Rudy injected in them uh, hmm. early on. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be crazy. I mean, overall in samples, like how many how many do you think is the total amount of cards that were printed? So like if there's a couple, like if let's say there's 3,000 in the, the Kickstarter and the content creators got a couple hundred, do you think there's 4,000 total like sample cards? Um, well, 244 packs equates to 3,000 and change. So that's gonna, that's a, that's the majority of what, like once Kickstarter fulfillment comes out, that'll be the majority of what we know to exist. The wild card is, what does the company hold? And again, does that matter? I don't know. Cause like, are they going to bring it to market or are they, why, like, why would like a company, uh, I don't think Eric and his co-creator would sell them. They don't need the money from oh, no, they wouldn't trying to sell sample cards. But like if they gave like a few packs or like a boxes to like some of their game designers that aren't rich guys, you know, there's some employees at the company. Will they put them on a the market? Yeah, maybe those could come to market, but yeah, I don't think it's substantial quantities. I never tried to like speculate it gross like total aggregate number of cards i just kind of think in the context of in rarity tiers if there's 
like we were talking about the uniques and elites, 244 total packs, one of either of those per pack. The and the uniques are like I think I think the pull rates are comparable because I think Eric wanted to like open some of those and see like are they collating it properly? Are you getting the right pack opening experience? Does the balance feel right? Like how does it feel like getting a hit every four to five packs? You know, mm. I, that's what I think. I don't I'm speculating a little bit there, but there's not gonna be a lot of uniques and elites. Those will be very rare and I think it'll stay that way. Um, so like, I think of it like on a rarity tier, like, okay, we've seen two to three copies of this particular unique. There's 244 more packs to come. I don't think there's gonna be like a windfall coming out of Eric's closet or other employees. So I would, I would guess there's gonna be less than a handful more out of 244 packs of any given card at the unique and elite rarity. And then beyond that, I don't know. Then it's like maybe there's a few hundred of like each of the ordinaries, or let's even if it's like a few thousand, seems like a lot now. But it, it it's all relative to how big the market is over time. Question: How much interest there is to absorb it? Like, <laughs> wouldn't they want to test like the templating on like each card? So wouldn't they have had to open enough product to like get like each of the cards to know that the templating's good? Like, I'd, I'd imagine that they'd want to do that. Like every card in the set? Yeah, yeah. So they know, um, like, because Flesh and Blood had this early on where uh, Bravo was yeah. misprinted, and it, like, the text was all the way to the side. It, it, yeah. was, it was not uh, yeah. too many released because they, I think they did something like that where they printed a batch, and then they found it, and then they switched it up. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of, like, pondered that as well, and I think, like, I think it's more about getting like enough cards in there to get a re representative sampling of the print quality, the colors, like how true are the colors compared to like what you see on your computer or what you see in the original painting? Are they oversaturated or are they, you know, way off the mark and just yeah. not presentable, too dark, too light, whatever. Like how are the corner edges, you know, things like that. I think they try to get a representative sample. I don't think they, printed every single card for that reason. And also because the timing of the print, the set was not complete. They were still commissioning art. They were still, they, I think they had art that they didn't have a game game uh, mechanic for yet. Oh, that's So they crazy. couldn't even print it. Yeah, so this is like so raw. This is what makes it more unique than MetaZoo, I think. I, like I said, I don't have perfect knowledge of MetaZoo, but these sample cards are very raw. Some of them like the rarity changed, the game mechanic completely changed. Um, or the title of the card completely changed. Like, there's been dramatic change. That's that's the other unique appeal from a collective perspective. They like that. Like, this is what Eric and his first couple of guys on the team were initially thinking. It has that like gamma MTG type five. Like, you know, this card was called Starburst. You know, and it became Time Walk or something or without knows, right? Or it was thrown out, right? But it's just kind of cool. That you have that like piece of like the rawest, most earliest development of that game in print form. From like an actual like the 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 printer that's going to print the alpha product. Yeah, it's, just, it's a you know unique cool niche, and some people are like they don't give a shit about that. They're like who cares? You know, it's not like an alpha. It doesn't even really exist in my mind because it's never playable. And what so if you had to estimate, <clears throat> would it be around four thousand cards? You think like four to six thousand is it? Is what you said? And again, like you know, this is all yeah. just like public information that you've seen that you've added up and like around that amount you think um well so you got 244 packs coming and then if we assume that there is where's my little calculator thing 
because there was two booster boxes, right? And 36 packs per booster box. Mm-hmm. So 36 times two, 72 packs times 15 cards per pack. That's team a- Covenants. Yeah, I was kind of Team Covenant and the one that Simon showed like on a YouTube stream. Those are the only ones we've seen publicly. So that's like roughly 1,080, so 1,000 more cards. Plus, let's say 3,500 from the Kickstarter, roughly 4,500. So yeah, maybe there's... I don't know. Maybe there's like a few booster boxes we don't know about. You know, maybe they sent one to Rudy and he's going to open it up after release. Who <laughs> knows? So let's say like another. We're at five thousand ish. Maybe there's another five thousand. We can like say ten thousand. I don't know. Shot in the dark, really. There. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. What what went to like most of the other um, YouTubers was the precon decks. So that's like another interesting wrinkle because are there cards <coughs> too? Yeah, they're sample cards, but they were in pre-constructed decks for, like, testing early gameplay. So I think the idea was, like, let's send it to Red Zone Rogue because he actually plays games. He's not just a collector, right? So like, Yeah, and Louie, too. Tinker around with him and play. Yeah, and Louie. Like, they actually played some games on their YouTube channel, which is what... So they use it as a marketing tool. Um, so they sent them pre-contacts for that purpose so they could play a functional game and, like, give them some feedback on how they liked it and help tell fans. Um and so, like, the interesting there, thing there is we saw some cards in those pre-con decks that we've never seen open in sample packs. So it makes you wonder, did they get your their fill, to your point? They they saw what it's like on a printed card, so they, they didn't need to reprint it in the sample packs. And therefore, there's no chance of pulling that card. Uh, and they did the pre-con decks first? Um, well, they I think so. We, we don't have perfect knowledge of that, but they went out to the YouTubers first. Because Team Covenant was the most recent to get that booster box. And, and they did say, like, Silver was to test the cards, and then our packs was about packaging. So they sent them one of their packaging boxes, you know? Gotcha. So. Yeah, I think based off that, if it's around mm-hmm. 5,000 cards, I think as long as it's not more than, like, 20, 25,000 cards, it's, it, I don't think it would materially affect it. I yeah. mean... I think any anywhere around the twenty thousand range and above would be where it's like tough as a collector if if those certain big hit cards got reprinted. But you know, yeah. it's it's like you said, like there's so much information we don't know about the company. Yeah. You just make these assumptions and and reasonable guesses or reasonable you know uh, guesses based off of the information we have. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I think sample cards will get. I mean, they'll fall into the hands of speculators and people that truly love the history of the game. Those are like the two people it appeals to, those niches, right? So yeah. maybe they become less relevant over time after those people acquire those that won't be like recycled on the market quite as much. I don't know. But I think it's like the attention is going to shift to the mainstream alpha product, and then we're going to get excited for beta. People are going to be playing the game. Then we'll be excited for Ethereum Legends. And it'll just be like another one of those niche categories, like you say. It's not going to be the main focus and like a lot of people won't care about it. So they won't be stressed out that like they pulled an alpha philosopher's stone, which is like the highest end that people call it the black Lotus of sorcery. They're not going to like say like, Oh, well there might be like a black Lotus sample card. In this <laughs> like, people are going to be like, who cares? That was just like a, like a test of the manufacturer. But other people like this niche is going to think it's, yeah, that is better than alpha. It's just mixed. Right. But it's, it's a smaller percentage of people. Because it's a niche by definition. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah, that's my take on it, essentially. So yeah, are you so you're are you gonna play the game? Like how or are you just like kinda casually seeing what happens and 
<laughs> I'm casually I'll, I'll seeing what's happening with my, my binoculars <laughs> on the sidelines. Uh, I have a couple of buddies in my locals who are uh, way better at uh, evaluating gameplay and, and like, uh, uh, you know, how good games are. So I'm probably going to let them yeah. test run sorcery, okay. see if they like it. If they get into it, then I'll, you know, I'll make a deck or two and, and play it with them. But um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it, it seems... Uh, it seems tough. Like I, I was listening to Team Covenant, and I think the main thing they said it was like mainly, you know, you're, you're making a story and stuff with the uh, the gameplay. But like, yeah. um, I think from the team, they still had to make a lot of uh, changes. Like late in 2022, right? Like they were still like uh, working over the gameplay and trying to make changes to yeah. make it like a a very well balanced product. Yeah, I don't, and yeah, it's definitely like a far more tuned game than it was even at the time of Kickstarter. Yeah, there's been like a tremendous amount of energy on game development, refining it. There was like test play initiatives with community members. So there was like a ton of feedback cycling through the Discord informally and then through like more formal structured play recently. So yeah, that's that, that was like part of like the reason for a lot of change from sample cards to like the versions we're now seeing for Alpha. Um, so yeah, and I think people say like there was someone. The, I, I always joke like the most cynical guy that was in the Discord said that this is like a great NFT pod project, but not like a playable game. This was like a year ago, and he since like disappeared. It was kind of weird, dude. But because he, he like he, he didn't buy it, the Kickstarter at all, but he was like in the Discord constantly like providing feedback, mostly negative. <laughs> but um, yeah, a lot of players are saying that it's like pretty legit now and they're like very happy with the state it's in and I, they've added more team members you know so the rule book has, has received a lot of refinement there's more developers so there's been like a ton more testing so i think it's definitely ready um and now it's like we'll see like does the broad market want to play a grid based game is it this grid best game or is it like genesis or one of these others i guess from what i understand are grid based i don't know well, it's tough too because the consumer market in TCGs. I, I've made a couple of videos along this line. Is they don't know how to judge how good gameplay is from, from one game to the other, and like yeah. that person who you mentioned, right? You know, that's a loud voice saying one opinion, and then you have yeah. other loud voices saying another opinion. But nobody has like a a group of metrics to judge right. each game by them. You know how you have video games, you have movies that have different critics and you know review bodies, but you don't have that in this TCG realm. And content yeah. creators, I think the biggest misconception as a viewer can have on a content creator is we're telling you legitimately like if games are good or not with gameplay. We are mainly marketing, in my opinion. I think that yeah. we're highly biased based off of the you know products that we receive for free or mm -hmm. you know stuff that we have or like me. Like if anyone's like listening to me. Like they should know that I'm a little biased towards flesh yeah. and blood, you know, based off of the collections and the things I have. So like, yeah, you know, I'm throwing myself under the bus on this, you know, as well. But like, I, I think we're just mainly marketing materials and, you know, judging how a good game is one from the other. Like, you really have to have experienced players, you know, review it. Like, for instance, like some games that don't get their day in the sun, man. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Netrunner or Star Wars Destiny. Yeah. But these were mm -hmm. great games, great gameplay. Yeah, I've, I've heard multiple people, right? They say, I hate mm -hmm. Star Wars, but I love Star Wars Destiny. Like, just really great gameplay. I, I haven't played either of those games, but when I've watched them on YouTube and stuff, I'm like, wow, that, that's a really cool game. But, yeah. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts about people reviewing games online? And if you were 
trying to find a trusted source. Personally, I think the best way is a board game geek. They have a bunch of uh, ratings and for tabletop mainly, but they have it for TCGs. What are your thoughts yeah. on like uh, rating gameplay from one game to the other? Uh, I think you're right. There's no universal metrics that are reliable. So yeah. it's a very personal experience and unique to your own taste, just like artwork is. Like some, like I think this painting is amazing. Other people might think it's ridiculous. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's just like human nature. Um, so, like, you got to play it for yourself and make make up your own mind. And and unfortunately, because of that, there's no good way to project how the mass market will receive it. You can only look at like anecdotally that uh, grid based games historically have struggled to survive in the long term. And Eric said that and admitted that. So he was like, wow, like when I first, like first it wasn't a grid, grid based game in his initial vision of what he wanted to create. But then his co-creator kind of pitched him on this game and he had a ton of fun playing it, you know, his first experience with it. So he's like, oh, there's potential here. I like this. And he's like a vintage magic player, you know, like semi-competitively plays in tournaments and stuff yeah. um, with like old school magic high-end decks. So that's his background. It wasn't grid-based games, and then he was sold on it. So, I mean, that's one data point, and he's a creator, so that's one guy's personal perspective. It doesn't mean, like, thousands more people are going to have that same experience. Like, we, I don't think there's any good way to know until it's out there and people give it a chance and play it. But I think, like, the most important thing is that it's going to have that chance because of the Kickstarter buzz, for one, that people are aware of it in this community, and then Rudy factor that's going to create awareness. So people, and, and I like the quality of the artwork again, like they might say, ah, typically I wouldn't mess with a grid based game, but even like as a collector, it helps to be knowledgeable on the gameplay. So, you know, which cards are good and why, and that helps like the valuations as like a collector investor type, right? And like how much you should pay for a card. So then they'll want to try it. And then hopefully when they try it, they'll like it. But I, I'm just saying, I think the opportunity is there for a lot of people to try it and then we'll see what the result is. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it's better than the, a lot of these games struggle to even get people to want to try it, you know? It's for sure got you a know? good chance. Mm -hmm. I mean, with yeah. the backing that it has so far, like, it's not like it, you know, is dead on arrival or something. The, the ship has sailed, you know, yeah. it's it's got a fighting chance. But, like, my, my issue with the industry is when people, like you said, like, people have to just try it for themselves. It re really goes into the aspect of subjectivity of gameplay. And I... I, I don't know. I, I think that there are things like, you know, video games, right? Like you might not like Zelda Breath of the Wild or Ocarina of Time, right? It right. might not appeal to you, but it's, those are really damn good games, you know? Same with movies. Like you have, or the TV show, Stranger Things, right? Yeah. My wife loves that show. But if you wrote it, yeah. like the concept down on paper, like, you know, a bunch of kids thinking D&D &D stuff in real the world, she'd yeah. hate it. But <laughs> it's written so well and it's acted yeah. so well that even she likes it. So I think that, you know, that there's definitely how uh, there's way to, ways to determine if, if games are developed what right. And I think our industry doesn't do that well enough and uh, yeah. different biases and things seep into uh, certain opinions. But, uh, but, uh, that's just a, another rant. Sorry, I'm going on a tangent. Yeah. But long story short, I definitely will be interested to see how, like, for the first few sets of sorcery, how they, you know, make new sets based off of the meta and balance everything and make a, a good current game experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I'm encouraged when I hear that, like, competitive fab players 
think this game has credibility from a gameplay perspective. There's a few guys like that out in the community or people that came from the magic scene and they're like, I've been playing magic for the past 20 years, but I'm getting tired of all the antics going on recently. So I was looking for another game. I gave this one a shot and I think it's fun as hell to play. You know, that that's like credible feedback. That's good. Um, that gives me encouragement that maybe it will resonate, re resonate with players, but <clears throat> I, I've never messed around with TTS, you know, so I haven't like taken that step to play myself. I think maybe after release, I will. It just turns out like some of the guys in Discord are like, oh, I live like next town over, <laughs> just coincidentally, so they could teach me, you know, so maybe we'll get together on the weekend. And give Have a you shot. played the game yet? No, I haven't played. I've watched all like others play. I've watched all the learn to play stuff and like in the Discord, people are playing in the channels, you know, so I've watched a lot of games and gotten a sense for how the game plays, but I haven't personally played it. So, yeah, yeah I'm, much, I'm much more a collector and into the art like spectrum anyway, but I played, you know, in recent years, just with young kids, I play like Hearthstone casually because it's like a quick, easy to pick it up, easy to learn and you just bang out a few games. But then I played Magic as a kid. That's kind of like my playing background, but that's about yeah. it. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, I think the, the, the main mm -hmm. key with Sorcery is that if they want to make a competitive style game, they need to worry about balancing their card pool, doing the ban list and everything like that. But if yeah. they do more of a casual gameplay experience, I don't think they have to worry that about that as much. If they focus more on yeah. sealed and draft, then if certain like crazy things can happen, if you're like a really competitive player and you're trying to break the game, you can do mm -hmm. that and you can make those decks. But it's not really like meant for that. Like it, it, you're either going to try to balance the game extremely well to make it a competitive game and try to focus on that, or realize that there's going to be janky stuff that happens because you're just making yeah. a fun story yeah. with polar bears going, you know, making teleporters and having laser cannons and fireballs. Like, you know, you, you, and, yeah. and that's where I'm kind of leading is like, I think there's, yeah. you got to pick it. You got to pick a door, flesh and blood competitive yeah. game. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Like I, we should ask like some of the game players, like how far is it on the spectrum of competitive versus like wild fun, you know, like, cause you could have a game that's like very tuned to give both players equal advantage or like equal opportunity. Right. And like your skill dictates the outcome of that game. I think there's a perception in this game when you start calling it boutique and flavorful and stuff. And like, what does people boutique start, even mean? I don't know. It's like, I don't want to go down that road because I hate that term. <laughs> I think it means something different to me. It means like your grandmother walking through like an old, in old town and going to the yeah, shop. Silly term, <laughs> so I don't think it should be used, but <laughs> like my point is like you see so you gotta have a fine, like highly competitive tune game like that where it's all about skill and being strategic and the best player wins, right? There's equal opportunity and maybe you try to eliminate some of the RNG type effects and bad bad draws and dead hands and stuff, right? But then like if you go to like super flavorful where like, oh, if I pull this one card, I'm just going to blow up the whole board and just win automatically. That could be damaging if you go too far in that spectrum, right? Because oh, like sure. no. if it's non-competitive, it's got to be fundamentally fun. And if like you can just get lucky and draw one card and the game's over, that's not, that's not fun. That's people, not fun. Right? Like exactly. if you're competitive and whatsoever and you like to win, that's not fun. So I think there has to be a balance there. And like my question for the gamers would be like, does does uh, sorcery strike the right balance in that regard? Yeah, I, I don't know. 
I think yeah. flavor is a really important thing that you're mentioning. Like one of my favorite cards of Magic, the best flavor is called Jungle Patrol. It's a creature where you put them down and you can tap it and create a log token. And that log token be, can be sacrificed for a red mana. I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> it basically yeah. cuts down trees and puts it there and then creates a fire. Like it's just so yeah. thematic. And having, I think those types of things in sorcery would be nice instead of like thinking about like, okay, what card is going to counter other cards or do damage? It's like, no, like, yeah. make it do something cool. Like, I, I only remember that Polar Bear card, but it was cool how it's like, can't you just, like, move it in, like, different directions off the stage? Like, different fun things like I that. I think, it, yeah, it, like, traverses, yeah. like, you go off the board and come back, like, Pac-Man style on the other side of the board. Yeah. I think that's how that one works. But, like, yeah, you touched on, like, <clears throat> a point there, like, where I think, like, it's the game's trying to capture the throwback vibe from an artistic perspective with the hand painted art and the um like the uh no style guide like the grit the fast diversity of art styling not trying to fit it into a singular war concept that's from our perspective from a gameplay perspective i think it is trying to capture some of those flavorful things you got in early magic like remember chaos orb is that was that the name with the card you yeah, like, you drop like onto the board yeah. yeah you like drop it on the board all the cards it touches like die right or what are destroyed um so it's like it has like it has like a that kind of vibe i think in some of the game effects the way i've heard it described from the players and from the company so that's cool like that's what makes a game fun you know it's a game <laughs> yeah. you're supposed to have fun right it's yeah not, exactly like, it's not always supposed to be the most mega competitive and when I play, like, Hearthstone is supposed to be a casual game, but I'm super competitive, so when I played it, I would get, like, pissed off oh, all the time. Played. And, like, you know, anytime there's, like, wild RNG, it would, I'd, like, get furious. <laughs> I'd play that so game like, uh, competitively. That was fun. I played yeah. Edward X and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, cool. I made the legend a few times and got, like, really into it. But it was a very nice. grindy game when there was, like, some some very trolly decks, right, with some of those aggro, like, Murloc decks and stuff like that. You know, it really burns you out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... And I think the the main thing that you want to do when you're a game creator, right, is make a game that someone plays and then they think right after that, I want to play another game. Like, even if yeah. they win or lose, they're just like, I want to play again. Mm -hmm. And if you can develop something like that, I think that's when you really have a winner. And when you make a you know balanced game, because like you said, if you have some with the win card where you win instantly, you know, the, yeah. your opponent's going to not like that. If you have something where you shut another player out early in the game, like halfway through the game, and they have to wait seven minutes to just die, that's not a fun game. You know, you yeah, have a lot of these right. different components mm -hmm. that can go wrong, like when yeah. you're game developing and really balancing that is a, it's quite an act. I don't know how Flesh and Blood is doing it. Like with eight sets, everything's, yeah. you know, reasonably balanced, and it's like mm -hmm. you have so much card pool. I mean, with Sorcery, are they going to do a set rotation, or is everything going to be legal for the end of time? Because that, that's I a don't, big permanent. Yeah, I don't think they've commented on that at all. That's like harkens back to what I said earlier, where like it, it really is a shot in the dark in a lot of ways. Like flesh and blood, there was some pedigree there where they had like a robust roadmap. Like we knew the guys developed it for like seven or eight years before release, right? You know? Yeah, so there was James like White. Yeah, it was a, like James White was an impressive guy. I was into flesh and blood a few years back before sorcery and then I just kind of got all in on sorcery because <laughs> I was super into the art and stuff. But um yeah so like i don't know like they so we don't know like those types of things like how the game is going to evolve and what direction that's going to take we don't know like how serious or not they'll get into competitive play we don't know distribution <laughs> yeah so we like we love what we see from alpha 
enough, like the community and like the early adopters that were excited about that and were kind of taking a leap of faith that like this game creator, Eric Olson and his partner and his team, like captured our imagination and our interest enough that like we're here for it, right? And like we trust their judgment and their creativity to make something super cool and flavorful. I, I have no doubt it'll be there from an art perspective because he was the art director for Path of Exile, you know. So like he has that pedigree. That was like, a really good game. Path yeah, like, he knows he knows games. He knows like what makes games interesting and fun. He knows like art certainly. Um, so we trust like like his ideas are pretty awesome so far. And now we'll have to see how they how they manifest and how they re- resonate with like a broader mass market, right? So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns about all that stuff the future <laughs> oh yeah for sure i i think yeah. personally too a lot of the tcgs if you're not gonna go for like uh you know trying to get a bunch of market cap i think there could be a market where a tcg comes out and makes sets only like twenty thousand booster boxes till the end of time and doesn't increase the quantity amount i could see mm-hmm. something like that and then they can sell it for a little bit more or something but yeah, no, yeah. I mean it, it will be it'll be interesting to hear everything that Eric has planned and the business model going forward. Um, yeah. Of what what do you what he intends to do with the game? Because I mean, yeah, it definitely seems like he has the pedigree. And if you yeah. if you ask Rudy why he's in the game, it's probably because of Eric. Like. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like the lightning yeah. strikes twice of uh, New Zealand magic over there, but uh, yeah. and and paying you know a great deal of money for the contracted artwork i mean he he's yeah. shown that he's you know uh pretty far into this so um mm-hmm. yeah i guess we'll see where we're heads out i mean yeah. you're i think what you've done your business model man like you've really helped the game like from me looking at another person who's like type of marketing for the game like i'm kind of yeah. jealous man like there's no <laughs> amount of impact that i've made on flesh and blood like you've made on sorcery oh, like, thanks, man. Yeah, there's so it. much more impact on sorcery <laughs> than i will ever have on flesh and blood that's but, funny uh, yeah 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 it's kind of coincidental i was just like i didn't have like a business interest early on i was just kind of like thought it was cool i was like i want to collect this and like I looked at, like I say that day he said that there's gonna be a foil of every card and they're gonna be stupid rare. I was like begging him. I was like, just sell an art set that's like just art cards, like the old Frazetta cards that are like a hundred bucks for the entire set. And then like he took it to an extreme where like there are full arts, but they're on the back of these like impossible to get foils. Um, so it was kind of depressing. But like yeah, so early on I was just like into the art and stuff and like thought it was like a cool concept. I thought Eric was an interesting guy, just like. I, like what turned me on to flesh and blood is I was impressed with James White's background. It was like, wow, this guy's like a magic guy. Like I was into that, like magic nostalgia from when I, I played till like, I played as a kid in the nineties. And then um, yes. like I moved to a different state halfway through freshman year of high school. So like I lost all my childhood friends and stuff. So like I, I, I just went cold turkey, never played magic again since I moved and I lost like all, all my networking friends and stuff. And then like, few years back in recent years like I've always been fond of those times like I had a friend that had an older brother that was like when we were like in elementary school this guy was in high school and he had a lawn business so he was buying up like boxes of early magic stuff winning tournaments getting free stuff so he had like page after page of all the power nines and like all the high-end shit right so like that like mind after me for life you know like I always wanted to have a high-end collection like him the best stuff and like the, the early magic was never attainable to me, you know? So like flesh and blood 
these past couple of years initially started scratching that itch. But then when like sorcery came out with the traditional art and like the alpha magic artists, that really appealed to me. And then like since then, learning about all the other artists has been like a massive breakthrough. Like I'm just as excited about those, if not more than the artists I already do. It's like discovering all these new art styles and like the personalities of these people. I talk to them all a lot and they're all like super cool and like generous to give me their time for interviews and stuff like that. So I just got like all in like hooked on it, but well, I don't I know. Yeah. That type of sentiment mm -hmm. is really what got this whole craze started in the first place. It's like, you know, flesh and blood became successful and like I was on the ground floor but everyone before me, like for the last, you know, for the first year of Flesh and Blood, they were like below the ground floor. They were in the <laughs> foundation of the home, you know? So yeah. that's what all these new TCGs are, you know, given opportunity for early people. It's like you can get in like while the creators like still like doing like just has the basics of their game and, and you can be a part of that, which is which is pretty cool. Because, yeah. you know, like you, I, I grew up in the 90s, ha saw a bunch of people playing Magic, played with, you know, a bunch of bolt cards. But I was never like, like around for like the beginnings of it, like the alpha and yeah. beta, and I never had mm -hmm. those types of collections. And I'd look at people who did, and I was like, man, I, I wish I was around that time period where you know I got those cards and I could experience the beginning of the game. And you hear people on for I, I blame it on the people on the forums, Mike. People <laughs> on the forums, they they would say like, hey, I was there and like you know day one of Magic the Gathering, and you know got an alpha pack or whatever. And yeah. like I'd be like, damn it. Why couldn't that have been me? And then yeah, I was a kid, and like they still had Arabian yeah. Nights and Legends in the stores, and it was like ten, fifteen bucks a pack, and I was like these assholes, like I'm not, no way I'm paying that, you know. <laughs> so like it was unattainable. Like I had no money as a kid, right? Exactly. It's it like a child. I had no but money. But now as an adult <laughs> with bank accounts, we can, and we do see like these new card games, and I'm like, oh, yeah. this is an opportunity for me to you know get like a collection from the very beginning of a game. So yeah. I think that that's really like the mindset that's uh, that has permeated for yeah. uh, you know the space. Yeah, I have an interesting like fab story in that regard too, because like I wasn't like as early. I don't know when you got in, but like, I wasn't like one of the beneath the ground people, like you say. Yeah. So I, I like, but I was early enough that like I was hearing about it, and it was hard to find. You know, I wasn't in a lot of LGSs. They were far and few between. I wonder if this is going to be repeated in sorcery. It'll be interesting how many stores it's actually in initially. So like I went to an LGS that wasn't so L. It was like a, a GS. It wasn't so local, right? I had to drive forty five minutes to get there. And um, an cause I was hearing, yeah, because I was hearing all about yeah, I was hearing all about like James White and like thought his background was cool. It had like those MTG throwback vibes to me. Um, so I was like, shit, maybe I'll go try to get some of this early product. It'll be like what I was trying to do as a kid, like get in early and get some of the cool like alpha stuff. So I went, I called him up, and they're like, yeah, we got like a stack of Arcane Rising first edition. Um, so I was like, yeah, maybe I'll come over there tomorrow. It was like early on, they were like still 80 bucks a box or oh, something. No. Right? So like, I was like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll just go right now. So I went, it took me 45 minutes to go there. And I was like, oh, I just talked to you on the phone. And I was like, I, I want to get like a few boxes. And um, the guy was like, oh, that's too bad. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said like, literally like right before you walked in the door, this guy came in and bought everything. Oh, so, so then he was like, and then he starts looking around. He's like, actually, we got this one box of Arcane Rising. It was the display box up on the shelf. So I got a box of Arcane Rising first for like $80. Wow. And then he, he had like some of the play mats. I got like a few of those, which they weren't supposed to sell. Those were supposed to be like 
the armory kit stuff, right? So I got a couple of, they gave them to me for like five bucks, like they're cheap. <laughs> so that was kind of cool, like some of the early artwork. And I th- and then I got like some, I think I got a box of Crucible, Crucible first for like MSRP, like 80 bucks also, I think. So I got in on some of the early stuff like that. But then like, that's when like the Rudy stuff happened and the big blow up and just the overall like macroeconomic conditions that made everything explode with crypto and yeah money with stimulus and all this that like really goose the market um so and then sorcery came along and it's still like early days this is pre-alpha you know a lot of people still don't even know about it so it'll be like an interesting ride and see how it does not just from a valuation perspective but like, i'm into like these new startups and like the business models and what makes them succeed or fail what kind of decisions do they make you what know the creators make, are interesting what do you think will make mm-hmm. sorcery like succeed like what would you do if you were running the ship? Uh, man, there's so Business many like, factors there. <laughs> I think like one key thing I don't like is how they're they're um, announcing print runs of stuff. I don't. I think games need to stop that. They shouldn't announce before nor after. Um, I think that's really like jack things up with flesh and blood, with the monarch situation. Like first of all, you had like the alpha or the WTR and the Arcane Rising, that surprised people in a positive way and everything blew up, right? Because there was a lot of excitement and demand. We thought it was going to be 25,000. It was 16,600. Yeah, so then people started making assumptions for Monarch and then they get overly aggressive and they were grossly wrong, you know, so they got burned. If these numbers were never known and it would just let like normal supply and demand dynamics, like basic economics run its course, then the market finds the equilibrium for itself, right? That's, that's why I like the auction model too. Like I don't decide that these, I, I could like open a sample card for $1. I just open it at $200 cause it seems like condescending cause I know people will pay that, right? So I open it at some price, some sell, like some people aren't as interested in the sells like between 200 and 300. So others like will go all the way up to like a thousand bucks or more. It's like, it, it's just supply and demand and the open market decides valuation. Same with this painting. That wasn't I'm currently that, auctioning, you know. Wasn't that the problem with Monarch though? Because like you said, you don't want print runs to be released before the product is released, and I t- I totally agree with that point. Yeah, I, I agree mm-hmm. with that point like fully. But for Monarch, we didn't we like we didn't know it, but then mm-hmm. people you know totally uh you know uh underestimated the amount of print run that was there, and based on those assumptions, based off of you know previous product, then they got you know burned after that. Yeah, I think um, I think they should never report it, not before and not after. And I think like like never. Yeah, never. Oh, so like okay. po- like Pokemon and Magic don't tell you the print run sizes, right? It's just supply and demand. And then, so like I think like um, probably make that, you nauseous. <laughs> yeah, like maybe that Monarch was like I think that whole phenomenon happened because of the speculative environment that was caused by announcing the print run of Alpha and Arcane Rising because like that it was like very clear that supply was an issue and the demand vastly exceeded supply so then people tried to game Monarch in a similar way and assumed the same would happen but it didn't like they got surprised by the number if they never knew the number then if people needed those game pieces to play the game they'd buy it and play the game or if they want to collect it and they believe in the game in the long term, they'd buy it and they'd be. I think like the price would have been much more stable. It would have never like even like WTR Arcane that wouldn't have surged to the same extent that it did. 
And then in turn, Monarch wouldn't have been speculated as hard. Like just supply and demand would take course if more people were playing, like playing the game and then more people were coming into the game and like the art or like to collect for whatever reasons, they would just do that. You know, yeah. it wouldn't have been biased by print run numbers in any way. Yeah, no, no, it's so. a fair, uh, it's a, it's a fair reasoning. And, you know, yeah. it's tough because around Monarch's time, well, I think it was April in 2021, that's when the heroin, the Rudy heroin, like started waning <laughs> off. And that's when, like, yeah. you know, shit hit the fan and crypto. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the biggest issue overall, what, what the market said is, okay, we, we underestimated how many were out there. And, you know, there's a lot more than people expected. And they, yeah. I mean, you also had so many different issues with like distribution, you know, hoarding product and like uh -huh. releasing small amounts and, and hyping it up. So you had that yeah. so much distribution issues because it was like the hot, hot cakes at the time. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, yeah, print run numbers are tough. I do see your point. Like if you do release them, then people are like, okay. I can game the system in a certain way by acquiring a certain amount of product and inflating certain things. Yeah. It's, it's tough. But then if you don't release it, then people might speculate like, Oh, maybe there's this amount of product out there, but they might be like totally off and, you know, make different buying decisions, you know, being mm -hmm. a collector, uh, in, you know, in different ways that like, aren't, uh, you know, they, they might get burned, uh, that yeah. way, but then like figure it out like by doing some math or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting that like, I think, um, I don't know for certain, but it seems like with Magic and <clears throat> Pokemon, um, it becomes clear when those are rotated out and they stop printing those. And sometimes, I guess in recent years, there's been like surprise reprints that people didn't expect to happen, but eventually it's generally understood that those go out of print. So they don't need to say the numbers. They just need to say out of print or not. Right. And then they age well because people have confidence in the game and the market grows. That's like any other product. You know, if like if the market grows, demand grows and then supply is finite, they're not going to print more of it. So demand exceeds supply. Valuation goes up over time. Well, you know, it's, it's completely dumb. <laughs> so it's like it's completely levered to like the interest and demand of the game only. And it's not biased by like trying to gain numbers, you know. And I think that's that's like how you have a true organic game. Yeah, but and like playing devil's advocate, like doesn't supply like doesn't price equal mm -hmm. supply and demand? Like there's that whole graph and everything. Yeah. And so like people will always demand. Yeah. inherently try to figure out what the supply is, right? Like we're yeah. as collectors too, because like the only reason why a certain card is valuable is okay what's the prominence of course like how much demand is out there but also the supply if you have a one in four card versus a one in 20 yeah. card though mm -hmm. that, that's like the mm -hmm. price differential between those two objects are way different but yeah yeah it, it's more so like if, if they declared out of print then the supply is finite right and then it's gone you can't go buy it in a store anymore it's only yeah. available on the secondary market so then if your game is growing and people still want those older products if they're still, like you said earlier, these, I don't know, maybe Sorcery is going to come out with their Ethereum Legends and all the Alpha cards are going to be useless. That could ruin the value of Alpha cards. I don't know, because they're not, like, playable anymore. Oh, the right? power or, creep if they go all the way up? Or or if, if they just, like, kind of revolutionize the game, like, make, like, a set-centric meta every time, you know, instead oh. of, like, building upon the foundation. I, I doubt they're going to do that because, like, Eric seems to really be following the magic script. 
And actually, there's an interesting point on that too. Like Alpha has no centric lore at all, right? And they say like, you create the story through the gameplay, the flavorful cards, you pick an avatar, you play as that avatar. That's a cop out, Eric. (laughs) Well, cool stuff happens in the game, right? Um, And that's, that's like their whole philosophy. But then like Magic did this too, right? When they came out with Alpha, it was a lot of diverse art, a lot of different artistic styles, like artists with different styles, no style guide, no like samey type forcing them into a lore construct. But then with their first, I think it was, um, they came out with, uh, was it Arabian Nights? It was Arabian Nights was their first expansion that had a thematic lore concept. So I think they did Alpha and then Beta and Unlimited, but their first expansion set was Arabian Nights. Yeah, I, I think so. like sorcery is kind of following that roadmap in a way, right? Like you got Alpha, no lore, Beta, which we expect to be largely a reprint of Alpha to reach the mass market, new players, and then Arthurian Legends clearly has like a, at least loosely a lore concept, right? Where you're going to have knights and probably gameplay experience that are fitting up Arthurian Legends um, theme. So I think like what I'm getting at is like I wonder how closely he's going to follow the it's like be purist to the early 90s vintage magic and use like use magic specifically as the roadmap guide like will we see uh oh you're talking about like for the sets it's like yeah the like, sets i mean there's mm-hmm. legends that was uh yeah. really popular in in magic mm-hmm. i think in the, it might have been right after uh uh the one you just talked about arabian nights yeah arabian nights yeah i think so some, yeah, there was um, the dark was somewhere in there. I forget the sequence yeah. specifically, but yeah, and some of those were smaller expansion sets, and like that's what's rumored. Like Arthurian Legends might be smaller. Like you have this massive set, and even like MTG Alpha was like 260 cards. I want to say something like that. So pr- pr- yeah. pretty sizable, especially for that era and original art. You know, like artists were working on very aggressive timelines to paint these artworks. There's stories of like Anson Maddox did uh, disintegrate in 30 minutes. You know the art for that with like a like sponge painting concept that's um, crazy like and now <clears throat> eric's taking his time and doing the art very well you have very a lot these are original paintings here and they're very like you see the detail in this like this took her you asked earlier how long does it take to, to commission the art it takes alvira shakarova she said like two weeks on average two to three weeks okay. um <clears throat> for something like this right she did i did a reveal with her a couple weeks ago and it had all this like very elaborate intricate gilding like around the border mm-hmm. um and that took her like a month right but every artist is different but so i think like it's kind of interesting i think eric's like a little he starts early and he allows the artist sufficient time to do it as best as possible in their normal work style um so he's i think he's ahead of the curve for ethereum legends he's probably commissioning for the set after that already he just hasn't told us what it is so could he accelerate the set release cycle? I think I think so. If he keeps leaning forward, and he's a pretty well-off guy, so I think he can personally financially fund it and be aggressive. <clears throat> like we said earlier, got to be sustainable, you know. Yeah, like he's got to like make a return. Yeah, sooner or later, yeah. and he's got to grow. He's got to hire employees, so the game's got to do well. But he took like I think this is a very unicorn project because. When again are we going to find someone that's going to commit to like all traditionally painted art, which is not as efficient the way the modern world works is digital 4G like much much more accelerated pace, and he has the own personal financial means. Like if you if you assume he spent six seven hundred dollars per commission on average, and some of these artists like the magic artists, who knows maybe they charge like a thousand fifteen hundred. 
Um, so on That's average, 700 idea. times 400 cards, you're talking like 300 grand of his own money to, to just get this project off the ground. That's how unlikely is that to happen again in our lifetime? I don't think we'll see it. So I think this, that's why this is like an exciting, unique opportunity in my mind. Um, I don't see it being like feasible to be replicated on this scale, you know? What, uh, just like a, a trading card game? I mean, I like the, well, the barrier with all, to end. With all hand-painted original art, I think. Oh, like, yeah, no, not at all. I mean, the barrier to entry of yeah. the, the startup mm -hmm. cost of that is insane. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I could be wrong, but I think digital art for, you know, some generic pieces are like $500 so you know a, a thing and you own the 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 rights to it yeah and like that's what is kind of like like weird to me like okay like digital art you can you know maybe spend 500 to a thousand dollars with an artist they give you a digital copy and you own that like the ip where eric yeah. is spending mm -hmm. more than that and not owning the ip so it's like it's a tough situation, yeah. but maybe he has a bit different business sense or different business model. I'll tell you something. He's probably much more knowledgeable of a business <laughs> person than I am. I, I want to put that disclaimer yeah. out here because I know I've been talking my ass off a lot of different concepts. I, you know, you know, not very privy yeah. to, but like I just want to see like what what is the the business model and I, and you know it'll it'll materialize over time. I'm I'm guessing, but. Um, well, I think it gets back to what you said earlier. It appeals to a different demographic, you know, yeah. like this, this will resonate hard with art collectors, like people in magic that buy original artwork, this should be a home run for them, you know, or like other, like yeah. other like collectors. And this is like the collector's dream, you know, it's a home run in that regard. Whereas like a game like fab there's, you have those advantages of own, owning the IP and digital is cheaper. So it costs less. And it's a player's game, you know, people want to play it competitively. So maybe the players don't care as much that they could care less if it's digital or hand painted, right? It's a different yeah. type of person. So I think that is like, to your question earlier, that is a differentiator and targets people that do care about art, like on like hand painted traditional art and the personal drive and passion it goes into, into that for the artist. That's a different kind of person, you know? So that's a different market. I think you, you could feel the, to both or different stakeholders. You can either be a multi-tool, <laughs> a, a scissors <laughs> or a kitchen yeah. knife, you know, <laughs> what do you want to be? But Are, were there funny. any questions that came in through the chat or anything? Let's see. I don't know. I'm People are speculating on, uh, can you see the chat comments? Oh, is your computer behind no, you? I can't. Oh, okay. Uh, they were active earlier. They're probably getting tired now. Probably. <laughs> Someone was speculating on, uh, leaves. I could put it. Can you see the screen when I do that? When I pull that up? Oh, it's um, on your computer behind you. Like the private chat or comments? Oh, I see the comments now. Yeah, I pulled it up. You see, you got to turn around to be able to see it. Yeah, this guy's the Legion for Ethereum Legends of Coexist with Cthulhu and Norse gods. A lot of people want like a Norse uh, or a Viking concept type game, you know? Viking would be mm -hmm. cool. What does Pelly say here? There's a correlation between supply and the card's price, but demand is a much stronger driver. And you see this in Pokemon all the time. Yeah. Massive demand in Pokemon. Like they could print a shit ton, but people just buy it up. Yep. And their target market <laughs> is make it a, a children's toy, you know, like that that's their market. And it's great because kids grow up and the new generation gets born and you have a whole other, you know, uh, customer base. 
yeah perpetuates and those kids that become adults are nostalgic for it so they have more financial means and they they're the heavier spenders and then they get their kids into it yeah so it's like an endless cycle it's an endless yeah. cycle it does that whereas flesh and blood mm-hmm. you know i think that they need to focus more on that endless cycle with college kids is like mm-hmm. getting that cycle going i i haven't seen any of the new tcgs do it like very well yet to where they have that nice perpetuating cycle yeah it's like noticeable but you know yeah, a good amount of chat here. Yeah. See, does anybody have any questions or was busting Pelly's chops? I guess he's saying he collects Pokemon. Disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I, I don't care about it, but he can care about it. You judge him, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Nah, whatever anyone wants I, I, like, I was, um, I think I was like, a little too young for Pokemon. I have a story on that one, too. So, like, similar to Fab. I speculated, like, I was graduating, I, let's see, I was, like, close to, like, graduating high school or college age when Pokemon came out, like, around 99 or 2000, uh-huh. so, and it was put out by Watsy, and, like, I, I literally know nothing about, like, the story of Pokemon, the video games, like, the characters, anything like that, so, but I was like, oh, Watsy's making a card game, maybe this is going to be just like Magic, and people actually care about this, so I bought, like, I went on eBay and I bought like a set, like a box of base set unlimited and like a full set or almost like two full sets, actually, like all oh, the, the whole set. And then I literally, it's like one of these unbelievable stories where you put it in a closet and forget about it. Like I had this little like toy chest as a kid at my parents' house. I put it in there. And then in like 2020, I started hearing buzz about like Gary V and all these guys hyping up sports cards and like other trading card games and stuff. And I was like, I think I have. Like, I literally had no idea Pokemon existed for the past 20 years at all. I was just not part of that scene. And, like, my kids are pretty young, so they're not into it yet. Um, but I just heard the buzz about it and heard it had value. So I went and looked it up, and it was, like, $8,000, you know. Oh, I paid, like, 100 bucks for, like, all of it. And That's then it, nuts. you know, went up to, like, 20 or 30 grand, I guess, in some of these sales. And I just had it, like in a case you know still kind of stored away (laughs) it doesn't do anything for me nostalgia wise because i was never part of that pokemon scene but yeah so i was like early magic you know so i like i like this project because it has those early magic vibes in a lot of ways i think that's the target demographic squarely and then others are starting to get on board yeah and having a more adult tcg is something that i think flesh and blood when they first came out, it, it doesn't seem like a really good business model because you don't have that endless cycle. And the, if you think about the top three TCGs, they all cater to kids or, you know, preteens, like 12 or 13. Uh, Pokemon yeah. age demographic is probably, what, eight or nine. So having something that's 16 plus is something like yeah. completely new in the space or not completely new, but it's, it's a hard market to get into. And I think sorcery yeah. is in the same thing. But maybe, mm-hmm. maybe sorcery is target market. Do, do you think that they can... Uh, go 12 and up or do you think um, I, I, the art probably appeals to more older generation of course but yeah it, is like the themes and everything like on the box do you think it's going to say 12 and up oh i don't or know like, yeah. Nah, yeah, i don't know i haven't seen i don't think he's going to specify i think he's going to yeah. let the market decide but like will it appeal to like <coughs> kids middle school high school like it did for magic i mean it did for magic and that was like a had demonic undertones and that kind of stuff, right? So I think it depends if, if if parents play with their kids, is it easy enough to learn and play where it's fun for them? 
Like, how early can I get into it? I don't know. It's all determinant on the artwork, I think. Like, if you have, like, people with blood splattering, like, everywhere, like, you know, Fab does, it's going to have to be 16+. plus. If it's not, then, okay, you can... Do you think... Have any of the card arts been, like, pretty graphic, or...? Um, I mean, some of the Frazetta ones have a little, like, nudity kind of... It's funny, like, when Rudy did it, he made it sound like a really racy game with this, like, cutting edge, like naked people and <laughs> machismo and stuff but it's not it's really not like that at all i think it completely misrepresented it it's funny it doesn't like, have pretty, any nudity on it um there's like a, i think there's one by melissa benson that might but it's like a uh it's called like a manticore so it's kind of like a statuesque type figure that has like breasts you know and then oh. there's like um like a frazetta one it's similar in that vein like frazetta would do like some kind of like I mean, it's part of art in a way. Yeah, like, could it could it be exposed to kids? Is the question. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I would play it with my kids if it was playable. I guess I, my oldest is eight. I wouldn't be worried, but I don't know. I'm yeah, I don't know any of those liberal on that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he said there's there's nudity and blood. Says Mike Pelly. I don't know. The art is definitely more adult focused. I don't okay, know. Maybe so maybe it's conservative. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, it'll be interesting. Even if it's like on the the edge, you don't want to like open yourself up for lawsuit. I'd imagine. So you probably. I think that's why Flesh and yeah. Blood does it. They don't have to put sixteen plus on the box, but they do it because yeah. they don't want some like concerned parent, like you know, Karen and ten of the <laughs> other Karens to join up in a lawsuit. And yeah, yeah, I don't know. I haven't heard them mention that, and like it hasn't really shown up in the teaser images. Like, oh yeah, because they have the booster box. I think so. Yeah. I mean, he showed like kind of, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's the official final version. We'll have to see. But I know he might have just missed that and not thought about it. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's that's an interesting point there. Yeah. It just goes get? into it like there's so many different facets with TCGs, you know, that you have to think about that the public is like, oh, it's so easy to make a TCG, but no, nah, yeah. a lot to it. <laughs> there's uh, Dell has this hard to find Dell. Uh, logo image you want to know if you're going after one percent sorcery bulk like you did for fab alpha uh <laughs> probably not <laughs> yeah. I mean, the amount of bulk that i have it's for sixteen thousand six hundred. that's like sixty thousand cards so sorcery you'd need literally a hundred thousand of the bulk so even at a penny each that's still yeah. like i think that's what ten thousand dollars It'd be it'd be a bit much, but uh, I'm yeah. telling you, I'm, I'm interested. Three, I'll, I'm very blunt and honest. Three to four weeks after it releases, I'm gonna wait until it dips and mm-hmm. try to see if there's different opportunities for me to set collect. You know, might as well. Yeah. Because yeah. like any TCG, like three to four weeks after, or you know, sometimes a month and a half, that is just supply just gets thrown out in the market. That price dips. So um, yeah, I can yeah, see that happening. Can, yeah because there's a lot of people that don't have genuine interest that is speculated and if it's like if they paid 130 and it's selling for let's say 200 north then it might make sense after fees to make a little profit and a lot of people will yeah at least like yeah. they'll or if they got a case or more they'll sell half keep half or whatever try to recoup their investment which is totally understandable and there's enough thirty thousand boxes there's a lot of opportunity for people to do that so yeah those and then it becomes like is there enough demand and genuine interest from others to absorb it all um, for it to stabilize and then endure? Or will it kind of like 
tank, you know, because there's, there's like more speculators than genuine interest or the, right. or the game doesn't grow fast enough. Right. Yeah, and if so, you're Eric, right, you got to imagine yeah. like got to figure out what is good press and news that you can release around that time because you know the dip's yeah. going to happen. And it, mm -hmm. if you have that stuff in your back pocket, like, oh, hey, this is, you know, good news that we're, you know, rolling out with that will, you know, yeah. alleviate a lot of people's like concerns. But um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering how it'll entice people with like beta, that there'll be any like sexy like nuances to it that differentiates it from alpha. Because you said a, while, a long time ago that he wants it to be largely the same as alpha. But I think he's going to, he's also said like he's been considering like different avatars and things. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, if he, uh, if, and, if, and even if, like, do you need to do that? Or is there enough pent up demand because so many it's taken like a year since kickstarter to get this thing out right so it's yeah. a massive lapse of time i think a lot of people have heard about that the game between like whenever the campaign closed in april or whenever it was till now that's like nine months right or almost like a full year of people like calling about the game oh i can't buy it i gotta wait for like kickstarter to come out once beta coming out you know so there could be a decent amount of pent-up demand too i don't know so like it's got to absorb the alpha. They'll go there first if it's affordable, or they'll just dive into beta. And it, people especially if that there's not enough cards. They'll be like, oh, that's the bubble. <laughs> yeah, and then beta comes out, and they complain there's too many cards. Yeah, and what do they do with print numbers? Will they announce or not? And like, how do they decide how much to order from the factory, or will they do it in waves? Is that logistically feasible, or is that I don't know how complex that gets. And like, because like, it's easy to get seduced by like these uh distributors like phd and i forget the name of the other big one uh, so um, southern hobby yeah <clears throat> they'll tell you like oh everyone wants to buy this shit like they'll print like two hundred thousand boxes <laughs> yeah. you know and they'll do whatever it takes to pedal it out to the lgs's and then they'll be holding the bag so you got to be careful like who you listen to and i think i don't know hopefully eric has the experience or has a team around them to it's a tough call, man. I don't know how you figure out the right amount of print and the right strategy. That's a shot. I think it's a pretty, pretty uh, straightforward. I mean, anything over 50,000, I think, is a little bit much. Like, if you look at, uh, you know, MetaZoo, they printed like 75,000, I think, right? They're one, and like, it took a very long time for it to. Yeah. I think it's still uh, out there at like below MSRP. Same with wow. Flesh and Blood, you know, uh, you know, Unlimited Welcome to Wrath. It's finally started like going back up, but um, yeah. I mean, tons of Welcome to Wrath Unlimited was printed. Like, uh, we don't know how much, but definitely over a hundred thousand boxes. But I'd say fifty thousand. What do you think for beta? Uh, how much they'll print? Or how much they should if you oh, were should print? Um, see, so it's twenty nine thousand alpha. I, if, if waves were possible, I would take that approach. So it would buy me some time to gauge demand. It really depends on the release cycle too. Like how quickly do they want to get Arthurian Legends out? Can you even afford to do waves? Or are you trying to get Arthurian Legends out fairly quickly? I don't know. I, I would say I'd, I'd be like nervous about pushing it higher than the Kickstarter. Because like 30K isn't 100% genuine demand. There's speculators in that mix. So yeah. what percent? That percent has to be absorbed by like genuine growth of new people and or new speculators that replace the speculators that don't give a shit and want to flip their alpha and go spend it on Fab or MetaZoo or Pokemon, you know? Yeah. So, and that's like a 
gamble. Like how, how much confidence do you have your game's going to get traction? It might come down to his like, like his feel for how many LGSs are on board too, right? Or like what his distribution model is. Cause that'll like give him some indication of like how many stores are going to support him and be an advocate of this game and try to sell it. Um, well, the problem though, if you so. print it less than the 29,000 <laughs> of the alpha, then essentially you've made beta more rare than alpha, which <laughs> yeah. I don't think has ever happened in any game. Yeah, but I guess yeah. to, to your point, like you do have to manage expectations. And I think that's, that's the next big hurdle is like, okay, how much do you print? And right now you're going to have everyone and their mother wanting more product. But then like, if you print too much, then, you know, people people whine and complain so yeah, it's, it's a tough thing honestly i yeah. think the the master stroke in this situation is eric says one month after alpha is released there's no beta that's it <laughs> and then we will reprint yeah. cards if necessary like polar bears and stuff but we won't do it with the original artwork it'll be a different artwork i it would be an insane thing for him to do that i don't think he will what, what do you think about yeah. that no, I think he's like said early on that beta is going to be largely the same as alpha with some nuances, probably that spice it up and maybe get like original adopters to buy again or want to complete a set of beta or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think like, and it's too costly, you know, to go with all new art or some, something radical like that is it's too many complications with it. I think, I think yeah. they're like, <clears throat> I think they, I think he got the art right very early on and like it was way like ahead of schedule on that. And then, um, there's been a lot of focus on getting the game play game design, right. And the gameplay in a, in a good state. So that beta would be a strong follow-up for new adopters. And then they're already, I think their focus is on Arthurian legends actually for painting commissions, certainly, but then also they got to start getting the, the gameplay figured out and make sure it's synergistic with their alpha set or like it's sensible to it, you know, and the games are, are play well with the alpha cards and stuff. There's, there's a lot of, it's more and more complex the more cards you throw out into the meta. Right. Yeah, it does. Like so, with each new set, it's just compiled. And it's still a fairly small team. So it's a lot of testing like on the shoulders of a few people. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, I don't envy it. I don't know. Someone said, uh, yeah, hard to justify second print less than first edition. I think you made a good point there. Like, maybe I had at least thirty thousand as the baseline, but somewhere in that thirty to fifty max feels right to me. Um, and then he says, "Do you think beta will have curios and such?" Uh, yeah, they haven't been. Uh, this curios thing is supposed to be like the throwback to the nineties, where you just don't know what's in there and you're discovering it for the first time. So. Is that a one and done unique experience for alpha or do they replicate it in beta? Do they have different curios? I don't know. That's, that's just pure blind speculation. I, and I don't know what is the right answer on it. I, I think like it, it would be definitely cool if they keep stuff exclusive to alpha. They should do that for the collector side of it, you know? Yeah. So different curios would be a cool concept. I could get behind that. And it's or, like, how much do you tweak your beta product to make it less desirable, but you don't take too much out of it to where nobody wants it and it's like a dumpster fire product. And yeah. it's so tough to do that. And especially like, in, that, yeah. Yeah, in this market, like 29,000 booster boxes is, is quite a bit, you know? And that's yeah. with that's with Rudy's backing and people interested in the game because of Rudy. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's why I'm thinking, well, it's like, well, 
if the demand is less than that, maybe you just go with 29,000, but he's commissioned so much artwork from like really good artists in the magic the gathering yeah. space, like Melissa Benson, you know, uh, and a bunch of other people. So it's like, yeah. eh, you want to do a beta set, but if you do, you're going to devalue your alpha. It's a, uh, it's quite a conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see it. I don't know. Maybe you print, uh, Arterior and legends next and then beta after that. So you build up a player think, base and then you yeah, re-release alpha. That's a, that's... I, I think it's more likely they would do like beta Arthurian Legends and then like a unlimited, right? Because like, yeah, I think Magic did that for a reason. Like they went, they had third edition revised, then fourth edition, then fifth edition. They kept reprinting the core set, and then they had expansion sets in between. So you have some foundational gameplay, and then you have other cards to synergize with it, and you introduce new ones like the Vault, the Meta, and whatnot. That's that's a logical model. I think, but yeah, I don't know. I think we have a lot of bias, like always like trying to think about the collector side of the equation, but really beta is um, also the onboarding point for players. Like not everyone's a collector investor. They just want to play a game. So there's a whole different market segment that will be perfectly content with like a complete reprint of alpha and pay cheaper for beta. And just that's their first uh, exposure to the game, right? They're not going to worry about valuations so much. It is true, but the tough part about that is that's what Flesh and Blood tried to do in their you know beginning sets. It's like, okay, we're going to have a product for our collectors and product for our players, right? First edition yeah. is for collectors, Unlimited is for players. And that didn't turn out very well because it turns yeah. out, I know this is crazy, but even players like money. So the players just wanted the first edition product. They didn't want the Unlimited. So mm -hmm. it's like you had this situation where you had this one box that everybody wanted and then other boxes that nobody wanted. So I think that yeah. that's really the tough distinction when you have a first edition and then, a, you know, a larger print of that same edition. It becomes less desirable because people just want the original thing. But to your point, yeah. maybe, maybe they tweak beta up a little bit. Maybe they realize that. You know, there's simple balancing things in alpha that could be tweaked with the the card pool, and they they just mm -hmm. develop that further in beta and then revised. I don't know. Yeah, and I think those points probably become more relevant with a more mature demographic. You know, because they have the financial means to pay up a little more for the alpha, not care as much about the Pohan beta reprint, right? Yeah. Um, versus like when we were kids or when I was a kid. I was buying mostly MTG revised and like, that's just what I could afford. I was happy to play it. And I wanted to get as many of those cards as I could. I couldn't really reach for like the beta alpha unlimited Arabian nights, you know, um, the big three stuff. So it just was what it was. And I was perfectly content having the, the cheapy cards. I actually never really, it was a different time though. You know, you never really worried about the yeah. money of it. You just want to play a game. <laughs> the world has changed now. And, uh, yeah, the collector investment angle is much more prevalent just where we are as a society. It really has changed. But, I mean, do you think we've ended that era of the free trendies, like people, you know, flip and make money? Like, I feel like 2022, it was pretty, you know, sagging, you know? And a lot of people yeah. in 2022 got into sorcery in March. Like, and that was when, you know, things were still, you know, relatively, you know, positive for the tcg industry now it's kind of like okay 
things are dying left and right, or you know, you hear certain things like that that Maelstrom TCG and yeah. uh, the Titan TCG, and you're yeah. like, oh, what's up with this? And I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I, th- I think the interest is what I'm saying. I think the risk appetite is still there, and people are still chasing it, but the opportunity is certainly not like it was. You know, we were in like a yeah. true black swan macroeconomic condition, I believe, where with stimulus and like loan forgiveness and crypto booming the stock market was like tech stocks popping off people just had so much easy money from every angle that they were just going wild and, and valuations were just going up up and up like every asset even dcgs you know so it was like easy to flip so people still it takes some time for that to cool off even when like money gets tighter i think people still think it's possible and still chase it and you got to get really burned <laughs> badly to like take your medicine and understand, you know, that it's a dangerous game. So yeah. I don't know. I think there's still some residual aspect of that. And I don't know. I, I noticed like a lot of flesh and blood carryover into this. Like in your community, do you see people talking about sorcery at all? Or do you see like genuine interest or do you see speculative interest or just no talk at all of it? Um, I'm not in too many groups or, or things. I, I've heard a lot of speculator uh, interest um i think people are just wondering now from the communities i've seen is the gameplay aspect is like how is it going to play out because uh i think from the you know announcement in 2022 got people thinking okay like is the gameplay like you know good or not because like Mm -hmm. i think the the um one one of the uh people on the team announced like hey we're gonna have a delay into 2023 and the main reason stated was because they're still hammering out the gameplay. So it, that, I think I think that was one thing that I've heard. And uh, I think a lot of people that I've heard of talk about it is like, oh, well, I'm wondering how the gameplay is. Um, the, the artwork looks nice. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there's like a lot of like wait and see type attitude for people that aren't like resonating hard with it already and not strongly appealing with it. They want to see if it's for real from a gameplay perspective, how the, how the mass market receives it, which is understandable, even in the art scene too, you know, like paint, I don't know. There's been some like paintings are doing pretty well. Like that one sold for 7,000, same artist that did this one, this one's for auction. Now it's at like 3,500. So there's like a healthy appetite for the art. Some of that's speculative. Some people just love the art, but um, I think like it's the, the, the market is very small right now. And I think it'll grow. It needs to be validated by a successful alpha debut. Like people, like people like yourself, are like worried that like you see the traditional dip after four weeks, and then how does the product respond? Does it stabilize or does it just roll over, right? And then like how does beta receive? That's super critical because that's supposed to be the mass, you know, your your first step into the mass market. And how smoothly does what is the distribution? model even look like <laughs> yeah we don't know do you have to buy it in lgs or could you also buy it direct from sorcery tcg.com i don't know anything's possible at this point yeah. um and then like how do the lgs's embrace it do they like is there do communities emerge where it's played or is it like literally a tabletop game where you got to play at home on your kitchen table organized play is another question <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's a good yeah. point like i don't know if there's any organized play events that are scheduled at certain game shops i mean there's no um, product that is going to the lgs at this point from like i guess we 
think beta is, but yeah. There was that, um, <coughs> the end keeper pledge tear was marketed to stores. So there was like, it came oh, with that? some, um, it had like some posters that they could hang in the store, some play mats, a few cases. Um, there's, there was a prize like promo card. It's called the champion. Mm -hmm. um, Vincent Pompetti is the artist. It's, it's really cool artwork. So, and then like the card looked a little different where it has like some kind of phrase uh, about like a like speaking to like a champion winning. So I think it's geared as a in-store tournament um, promo type concept. Do the stores but, have to give it out to a player? I, think, I mean, you can't control that, right? I don't think <laughs> there's any way. I don't think they yeah, have sanctions like flesh and blood where they like, I, I don't know. They could. I, I have no idea what their like LGS relationships are. I'm just assuming now. I guess Flesh and Blood's the first I ever heard of that, where like they try to control that and say like this is the intent. If we find out you're abusing it, there'll be consequences, right? <laughs> oh, that's for the uh, the Armory kits. They, yeah, I right. mean, they they give that's them I mean. out completely free to the LGS. Yeah. So in that case, it's like, hey, we're giving this shit out for you for free. You better give it to right. the players. It's like that's yeah. what it's for. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, we don't know any of those details. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see. Let's see. What big shows do you what is this? What big shows do you guys think they should debut sorcery at? Oh, like conventions and stuff? I'm not I don't know about the convention scene. I, I went to the IX art show and I like like art things like that. <clears throat> I'm not like a big like go to a convention kind of guy to look at a bunch of, I don't, this is the only game I really care about. So it wouldn't really like suit my interest. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe someone show? like conventions, Gen Con and stuff people talk about and things like that. I don't know. Oh yeah. I don't know. Cause it's, it's in between the board game and the TCG realm, right? It's got that yeah type of thing. I guess you could yep. do both. Yeah. People should realize it's easy to learn and free to play with plenty of how-to guides on YouTube. Yeah, it's important. Easy to learn, but like I said earlier, there's um, strategic complexity to it. It could actually get very complex with the navigating around the grid, and um, that adds a whole another layer, you know, a whole new element to the game that people that are into that really love. I don't think you have to be like a board game guy to appreciate that either. I think it's pretty interesting myself, and I've played more traditional games like magic and hearthstone right that didn't have any kind of grid concept whatsoever but i could see how that could be pretty compelling you know because i i was actually you know i was also into games like completely different genre but like war games you know like computer games um played that like a bit in college and i like just marketing business like art, type yeah, stuff right what's that like, like a real-time strategy I mean, like Command and Conquer and um, games like that, right? Which is like you're moving around a realm or world and positioning forces and units, right, to attack and defend your base and stuff like that. Like that, that, that element's in sorcery in a way, which is pretty cool. I think you know. Yeah, I think I think that's called the RTS genre. Yeah, real time strategy, and yeah, okay. that, that that was a good game growing up. I remember that. Yeah, Command yeah, there's a whole series. Yeah, let's see. It's very strategic, but the mechanics are all pretty straightforward. Yeah, so that's the right balance. You know, if, if something's too hard to play, people won't bother. Like, I yeah. don't want to read a big complex rule book and stuff. I, when I when I was a kid, my friend, my magic friends were playing D&D, &D, and they told me I had to read, like, 
some dungeon master book or some bullshit. I was like, I'm not reading a book to play a game. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, ne I never fun. played it. I never played it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I refuse to read the book. <laughs> it's fun when you're older because you can like just drink beers and have a good time. And yeah, it's not too yeah. much reading. But uh, yeah, I mean, from a gameplay pers perspective, just like from what I've seen when people play it, I'm happy that they don't have a land-based resource system. Um, I think that's archaic and any new TCG that has that, it's like, if you have a system where it wins and losses t 10 to 20% of the time are based off of, you know, land draw, it's like, yeah. it's like, that's, the, it's not a good balanced gameplay and it feels bad when you, you know, uh, lose because of something out of your control. Um, mm -hmm. For sorcery, it does seem like there's certain aspects where you can like lock an opponent out from a, a certain thing or, or do uh, like a certain move to like, you know, get a victory like mid game and kind of capitalize on that. Um, yeah. But they've probably implemented a lot of stuff. Like I've just seen the team covenant thing. I think Zach did something where he like prevented um, that, that other guy. I forgot his name. Uh, Steven. To, yeah, Steven yeah. from like mm -hmm. doing something and then that's what they were talking about. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that that goes into the edge of like, okay, if you have too much uh, like presence on the board where you've got an early game advantage, that's that's the word I want to talk about. Okay. If you yeah. got a mid game advantage of like tempo, how does your opponent come back from that? I think that's the biggest question that you'd have to ask and a lot of the answers to that is like you know you have board clear and uh yeah. other like catchback mechanics but um mm -hmm. that's kind of like my, my initial thoughts on the gameplay yeah and there's like an interesting um resource dynamic where you have like the atlas cards and then the spell cards so those two decks that you draw from and you choose each turn like what you draw from so like you don't get mana screwed and stuff like you you, you can strategically pick that, that's a whole nother element a strategic aspect um to the game so yeah it could it's, it's kind of cool it's, it's innovative in some ways i think i don't know like yeah, I, say, like, I don't have the experience with grid-based games but it seems pretty compelling yeah someone's saying here there's lots of board life <laughs> that's good like, that, that could be good and bad yeah it could be frustrating if you build like yeah you have some concept to defend your guys or like advance and then boom it is nuke the whole freaking world <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me Flood the realm, baby. That's what he says. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We're getting like some guys coming in from like different time zones because like this is a very international game already. There's a lot of like Europeans and um, people out east are like either six hours or eight hours ahead of us. So it's like morning time. This guy popped oh, in wow. and said it's seven a.m. <laughs> oh, geez, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't know. We've been going for oh, almost three hours, man. Time damn. flies. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a great chat, Mike. Really enjoyed yeah. it tonight. But, yeah, uh, I guess we'll yeah, wrap there, up. Are there any other comments in the section, or that you pretty much got them all? No, yeah, it's been a little more quiet recently. So I think we've burned out the East Coasters and in the U.S. And <laughs> we're getting some of the European scene now. There's, 15, there's been 15 that... 18 or 20 ish people throughout, so it's pretty good. It's not too bad. Yeah. All right, man. Well, yeah, it was great talking. I think uh, it's good, good questions, good exploration. I appreciate your time since you're not even like that into sorcery just yet. So <laughs> you hung in there for a while. I don't know if I could talk about 
you know, a game I was casually interested in for three hours. But oh yeah, for sure, cool. man. I've I've got my pulse on a lot of games out there in the industry yeah. that I'm not very into. I'll tell you what, like, <laughs> uh, it's just uh really fascinating to see different business models and how each one you know capitalizes yeah. on the market because. Uh, you know, like I, I know I said it a couple of times, but I, yeah, I definitely think that each game needs to do their own little niche, right? Like you, yeah. you can't be a multi-tool. If you try to go to too many different things, you know, you, you have nothing special about you. So Sorcery yeah. is definitely an interesting TCG on the radar. It's probably one of the most interesting ones that is a Kickstarter. I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. one of the biggest, other than Grand Archive, I think those are the two biggest everyone's uh, looking yeah. at, but um yeah i guess we'll see what happens with the the business model and how yeah. they you know evolve their um printing and uh going into game stores and organized play and and the works but yeah yeah yeah, yeah and we'll have to keep in touch i'm curious to see if you stick with it or if you end up trying trying to gameplay down the road what you think you'll have to give me that feedback i hope to try to play it like i'd like to play it with actual cards and not get on tabletop simulator i've never messed around with that and seemed a little clunky so i don't want that to be like my first foray into yeah, experience <laughs> into it yeah 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 exactly and there's the print and play option a lot of people have done that but i don't know it takes too much time that i don't have <laughs> yeah agreed to, so yeah it's cool talking man well you uh, too, i like Mike. your channel like you it looks like you're closing in on 1000 so congrats hope you hit the milestone soon Thanks, if you man. haven't already well deserved i know you've been going hard on fab for a while so I've been grinding it out, man. Yeah. <laughs> You're a deep thinker. I appreciate your like pondering thoughts on your, your style on your channel. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. So, I mean, I want everyone to watch my videos and leave with a headache. Like that's yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you think so hard that it just hurts. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. All right. Well, take care. Thanks for joining me tonight and we'll do it again sometime. All right. Sounds good, Mike. Take care. All right. Take care. I'll see you. Cheers. Bye.